This is getting out of hand. Now there are two of them. Where's your innovation, huh? Sequels suck. Do the same thing. Everyone's happy. It's all about money, boys! Here we go again. <laughs> hey guys, and welcome to another episode of Franchise Fatigue. This is a show where we explore film theories one movie at a time. I'm your host, Gabe Green, and I'm also here, as you can hear, with James Hamrick. What's up, man? Hey, what's going on? Oh, nothing much. I'm not sure any of that actually came across. <laughs> with, with well, did it in the movie, though? <laughs> I think you blew out the Zoom speakers. Um, Yeah, so uh, we are here to talk about the fourth uh, Harry Potter film, the rather controversial Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. And today we are joined by Ryan Wall to help us talk about it. Welcome, man. It's good to be back. Um, That wall of sound just destroyed my ears, (laughs) so I'm sorry if I can't hear you after that. But uh... Uh, You'll be all right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and a real quick, uh, Ryan, you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and anything you might be up to online? Yeah. Uh, my name's Ryan, obviously. <laughs> I host uh, a trivia show called The Raw Quiz Show on YouTube. Uh, James was actually a combatant in both season one and two, where he met an early demise both times. Um, <laughs> if that sounds crazy to you, that's because it is. It is a wild trivia game. Uh, with direct competition um it's on youtube just look the raw quiz show and you should find it up pretty quick um yeah there's been some harry potter questions there so if you like that mm-hmm. and uh you've been if, if you any of y'all have been listening to the bad batch reviews uh i've had ryan on a couple of times for those and he's been on past episodes incredible hulk maybe a couple others um, but before we begin our discussion on the Goblet of Fire, I want to ask you guys, if you enjoy the show, to please uh, take a moment to rate and review this uh, our, our podcast on iTunes. We'd be very much appreciative. And also like us on Facebook to keep up to date with all the latest episodes and uh, to leave feedback that can end up on the show. And speaking of said feedback, I asked on uh, Facebook and Twitter what our listeners thought about this. Uh, we got a lot Um a lot of uh, responses. Uh, so first up, James said, unpopular opinion from what I can tell, but this is the best movie in the series. <sighs> Just for clarification, uh, different James. <laughs> different James. <laughs> but he was one of the ones defending Chamber of Secrets, but uh, I guess nobody's perfect. Uh, Anthony said, Shame. my least favorite. Michael Hoover from the A Certain Point of View podcast said, um, I find this to be, to be the least interesting one in the series. While it does have some bright spots, it is easily my least favorite. I know I know this may be shallow, but I find the teenage drama stuff to be pretty tough to watch, and this is something that doesn't usually bother me when done well. It doesn't help that it's sandwiched between my two favorites, uh, Prisoner of Azkaban and Order of the Phoenix. Hey, Rachel Wall said, plain and simple, this one is my least favorite, Prisoner of Azkaban for the win. Uh, and then there's a gif that says, boring. That she, uh, she attached there. A different Anthony said third fave, uh, but he also put Prisoner of Azkaban as his least favorite, so we don't listen to him. Uh, Curry said it used to be very high on my list, but fell dramatically on my last rewatch. Then over on Twitter, uh, Chad Hopkins at Chadadada, the host of the Cinescope podcast, said, Last place for me, but on my last rewatch, I remember not disliking it as much as I used to. The ending graveyard scene is super great. Good take. Uh, Philip Heard at Heard03 said, 
I like this film, although the book is indeed a lot more fun. I place it ahead of the first two entries and behind the rest. I've been enjoying the series of the podcast. It's getting me itching to revisit the Harry Potter world. Look at us go. Oh, so so these next two ones are actually rather long. However, I felt that since we are going to be spending a long time bashing on this film, it was only fair to have the people who who, uh, who commented in, in response to my request with rather positive things to say. And I, I think these two comments actually do a good job kind of expressing why people like it. I mean, there's no actual good reasons to like it, but these are, these are okay ones. Uh, so yeah, I do want to give uh, these people a chance to have their say. So JX Schramm said... It'd be naive to say this is a perfect film. It meanders, is unfocused, and omits a lot of key plot lines. But as someone who was around the same age as the characters when I first saw it, I'd say this is the film that captures what being a teenager is like the most. From the rebellious haircuts, to the characters expressing attraction for one another, to the Yule Ball slash prom night, the whole film does a great job symbolizing that weird and confusing juncture between being a child and a teenager. Coming after the masterclass in narrative that is Prisoner of Azkaban, it leaves a lot to be desired in that respect, but it makes up for it with some really understated acting, great character design, exciting set pieces, and, and exciting set pieces. All in all, I think this is a really serviceable continuation of the new Dark Potterverse that replaces Columbus's vision. I'm not going to argue with any of that, except for understated acting. <laughs> Where and by who? <laughs> I would actually very curious to know what he thinks there. Uh, maybe it's maybe it's the the main three he's thinking of. There's nobody in a supporting role that. I, that no. I think. Uh, at Beth Dunker said, uh, "Goblet of Fire is definitely not the best film in the series in terms of plot, tone, acting, or overall quality. However, it is the film that had the biggest impact on me as a viewer and the one I've seen the most times. I was 12 when it came out, and so plot elements like uh, emerging romances, the Yule Ball, and even the mild swearing excited and appealed to me as a newly, uh, as a nearly teenage viewer. The final scene between Voldemort and Harry still holds up as a really well-executed magical fight. It's exciting, scary, and has massive consequences for the characters. You really get a sense of the magnitude of Voldemort's return, and the terror felt by Harry comes across really well both in the writing and Daniel's acting. Overall, the film is probably one of the worst in the franchise in terms of quality, it'll always be one of my favorites because of the nostalgia it holds for me. And uh, a, a different post I had made about the film, a, a friend of mine commented and she as well was, so this is one of her favorites because of all the teenage romance drama stuff. All right. So diving into the behind the scenes of this film. Um, so Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire was published on July 8th of 2000. It was the first book in the series to get a simultaneous UK and US release. Um, and it would have been the latest books published by the time the film series, the film started coming out. Then over to the adaptation, uh, it seems that uh, Alfonso Cuaron was offered the job to direct Goblet of Fire, but he opted not to because he didn't want to split his focus between finishing the post-production on Prisoner of Azkaban and then starting pre-production on Goblet of Fire. So Heyman and Warner Brothers chose British director Mike Newell for the first film. Uh, he's kind of an old pro at that point. Uh, he, he's He'd been directing uh, films since the 80s and then directing TV since the 60s, um, having worked in pretty much all the different genres you can imagine. He's probably best known at that time uh, would have been for the Hugh Grant comedy Four Weddings and a Funeral, which is pretty decent. And he was he was hired roughly eight months before Prisoner of Azkaban released. And going into kind of his thoughts on what, what his thoughts were coming into the project, uh, he says, I, I was going to make it really dark and creepy. And then I went uh, to Alfonso's cutting room and he showed me this dark and creepy world that he had made. And so I had nothing to do. What, what was I going to do? I had to reinvent the wheel. And in other reviews, he talked about how they, 
initially they wanted, I guess, Warner Brothers and uh, Heyday Films, they were looking at the possibility of splitting this book into two because uh, Prisoner of Azkaban is roughly 300 pages. Goblet of Fire is well over 600 pages. Like the, the, the is a massive step up. It's a huge book. But Newell did not want to split it into two films. And he rather he said he'd rather just streamline the story into a single film. And he, he said his philosophy uh, of adaptation was to try and tighten it down as much as possible and turn it into this tight Hitchcockian thriller. That's the that's the kind of the phrase he used in all the interviews. And once again, uh, Steve Clovis returned to, to write the film's screenplay. Of all the films in the series, I want to see his original screenplay for this um, separate from the film because... Because his scripts for all the other films are kind of good, and this one isn't. So I wonder if that's his fault or kind of thing, your changes that uh, Newell made later on. Uh, as with previous ones, uh, we're just going to go over new primary castings. Uh, the most notable one, uh, the most consequential one is Ralph. Is it Ralph Fiennes or Fiennes? I've heard Rafe Fiennes. Ray Fiennes. Ray Fiennes. Ray Fiennes is what I've heard, too. Gotcha. I don't know why they pronounce Ralph like that, but whatever. That man, they're out there uh, as Voldemort. Uh, it's funny. So this is something that I've noticed with a lot of like these, whether it's Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings, or just with a lot of these kinds of series, is people join because of family. I think we even talked about this on a, a previous episode. Uh, but during an interview on the Jonathan Ross show, Fine said, uh, uh, "The truth is, I was actually ignorant about the film and the books. I was approached by the production. Mike Newell was directing the film they wanted me to be in. The first time Voldemort was going to appear physically." Out of ignorance, I just sort of thought, this isn't for me. Quite stupidly, I resisted. I was hesitant. I think the clincher was that my sister Martha, who has three children, were then probably about 12, 10, and 8. And she said, what do you mean? You've got to do it. So then I rewound my thinking. Um, and so after their excitement, he ended up accepting. Uh, if we could just create a compilation of all of the actors who accepted roles for reasons <laughs> like that. Probably the, the second most notable casting would be Brendan Gleeson as Mad-Eye Moody. Um, and yet again, in an interview with The Guardian, he was, this was, uh, I think he was, he was um, on the, the press tour for uh, a play he was doing with uh, Mark McDonough, but he was asked about this. He said, you had, uh, the interviewer for The Guardian said, you have four sons of your own. Were they excited when you got that part referring to uh, Harry Potter or referring to Mad-Eye Moody? Uh, and he said, they were the reason I did it. They all roared when they heard, dad's going to be Mad-Eye Moody. After that, it was never not going to happen. Mm -hmm. Uh, so there you go. Uh, but we we do have some uh, some more notable casting. We have Robert Pattinson as uh, as Cedric Diggory, who was technically seen uh, in previous films, but he was played by Joe Livermore. Uh, you kind of see him during Quidditch matches in the previous films. Um, Jeff Rawl appears as his father Amos. David Tennant plays Barty Crouch Jr. Uh, Roger Lloyd Pack uh, plays Barty Crouch Sr. Katie Lung appears as Cho Chang, Clements Posey as um, Fleur de Lacour, which actually makes this kind of an in Bruges reunion because we have Ray Fine, Brendan Gleeson, and uh, uh, Clements Posey all all coming back. Wait, she's in Bruges? Yeah, she's the she's the girl uh, that he falls in love with. Colin Farrell. Yeah. Oh, okay. It's been a while since I've seen that. Uh, we also have Stanislav Lenevsky as uh, Victor Crumb. Miranda Richardson as Rita Skeeter, Predrag Jellock as Igor Karkarov, Francis de la Tour as uh, Lady Maxime, Shefali Chowdhury, uh, and Ashan Azad as Parvati and Padma Patil. 
uh, Eric Sykes as Frank Bryce. Um, and then the last bit of little cameo casting is we have uh, the band members of the Weird Sisters, which is this whole uh, fun little bit of trivia. Uh, Jarvis Cocker. So. <laughs> it's a fun bit of trivia. Uh, Jarvis Cocker of Pulp Fame as Myron Wagtail. This is the one that gets me because I had no idea. Johnny Greenwood of Radiohead as Curly Duke, the lead guitar. We also have Phil Selway of Radiohead or Orsini uh, Thruston on the drums. Like, man, you got Radiohead and like you didn't come up with something amazing. Oh. Uh, Jason Buckle of uh, All Seeing Eye as Heathcote Barbary. Steve McKay, also of Pulp as Donegan Tremlett. Uh, Are these band members? Yes. Uh, Stephen Clayton of Add In or Add In to X as Gideon Crumb. I wonder who picked these because I imagine you know sixty-year-old Mike Newell isn't the one finding all the you know, the fresh bands. So filming began in May of two thousand four. All the interiors were once again shot in the Leavesden Film Studios in England, with with exteriors being shot around England and Scotland. Roger Pratt, who shot Chamber of Secrets, returned to the series as director of photography on this film. For the second task that takes place underwater, they experimented with shooting dry for wet, um, which is a that's a pretty classic uh, technique. Uh, really good, really good recent usage of that would be uh, the shape of water. Look up some behind the scenes stuff on that; it's really cool. Um, but they weren't able to they weren't able to get the hair to kind of move and undulate correctly, so they had to shoot it underwater in a giant tank with Radcliffe taking like six months of scuba training. It was a very extensive underwater shoot, this massive tank. Um, Daniel Radcliffe ended up spending a whole bunch of time underwater. Um, nowadays, they would just, you know, replace the hair digitally. Um, like they did, like Aquaman was shot. Was there, I don't know that there's any underwater photography happening there, but they just shot it dry for wet and just put CGI hair in kind of waving around. But uh, CGI was not able to do that in 2004. For the film score, uh, this is actually the... Uh... The first film not to be scored in the series by John Williams. Understandably, he was uh, he was busy with other films. Uh, however, Patrick Doyle, who had worked with Newell in Into the West and Donnie Brasco, ended up coming in and replacing Williams. The request was that Doyle would be working with Williams' material. Uh, however, by the end of the scoring, the only returning theme was uh, Hedwig's theme. This series is like the MCU in that regard. Like, there's very, there's very little yeah. uh, care to carry over themes, uh, except Hedwig's theme. They kept, they kept that one and used it right. Yeah. Pulp lead singer Jarvis Cocker uh, was one of the mu- musicians uh, invited by Doyle, with whom he had worked on the the Great Expectations soundtrack, and he was actually the person to write the Wizard Rock Band songs, because and there it's called a Wizard a uh, Wizard Rock Band because. There was a whole rights issue because there's an actual band called the Weird Sisters, some sort of Scandinavian rock band. But he got, oh yeah, sorry, I could have said this whenever you asked the question. So it was him who gathered up all of these other British rockers to, to play those parts. And again, like, man, the amount of talent you had. Up <laughs> wizard rock band is like the Washington football team of wizard rock bands. <laughs> <laughs> That's a sports reference that I actually got. Yay, yay. 
the film ended up having its world premiere um, in London on November 6, 2005, uh, and then it had a wide release over a two-week period from November 18th to December 15th, or December 1st. All right, so um, let's, let's go through our kind of our histories with the film, starting with you, Ryan. Um, like, when did you first see this film, and uh, have your thoughts evolved on it at all since then? I, I have a, a weird relationship with Harry Potter because... Oh yeah, that's probably a question I also should ask. Like, as far as we haven't had you on before, like I forget because I, I talked to you about you're my you're my like resident Harry Potter fan friend, so I always yeah. talk to you. <laughs> but for the listeners, what is your history with Harry Potter and all that? Yeah, well, I I was on for the quick thoughts of the Crimes of Grindelwald thing uh, right after that came out, but I don't mm-hmm. know if we got into that history there. But either way, it's worth revisiting because this one in particular is an oddity because. Uh, growing up, Harry Potter was huge, and I was not into it. it. I had seen the first one, I had read the first one, and it just didn't at the time hook me the way it has now. And I had this weird thing where I saw Prisoner of Azkaban next, totally missed Chamber of Secrets, and then this one, Goblet of Fire, is actually the first one I saw in theaters. And I remember walking away confused and disappointed and now my opinion is that i'm confused and disappointed <laughs> so <laughs> i just have a better understanding yeah, of I, don't, I don't know that reading the book would have helped you there <laughs> uh. <laughs> so eventually of course um i i did click with harry potter on a whim i just decided you know what i'm gonna i'm gonna read these and um ironically i had access to all but this one at first so i had like read um sorcerer stone through prisoner of Azkaban, watched goblet of fire and then read all the way through <laughs> deathly hallows and then eventually got my copy of goblet of fire and read it and was like oh oh this wasn't supposed to be this bad <laughs> so, now, now to be clear I don't think this movie is a complete irredeemable train wreck. It's got some fantastic, even series high note moments within it, you know, but it's also got a host of problems that the others do not, or at least do not to this degree. (laughs) Yeah. How about you, James? So uh, (laughs) going over my general history, as as we've already kind of gone over, uh, I watched this for the first time, but I guess it is important to note. So I, I like I said before, I I grew up with the first two, watched Azkaban once before, and and was much more familiar with that. So my marathon that I had this year, the very beginning of this year, was the first time having seen Goblet of Fire, and I have to admit I I went in with certain expectations because of. Uh, conversations in the chat i i was not at all unfamiliar with both <laughs> yours and ryan's thoughts on the film uh going into it and so i'll be honest it wasn't as bad as i was thinking it was going to be and i really did enjoy a lot of it and i you know, I, I rewatched it now i've seen it twice and i do still genuinely enjoy it and, and i think that the comment that i put in the chat was i do like this movie it's just the list of my list of problems for this movie is like 20 times longer than like the runner up. Uh, 
I just, I can, because even before, even with something like Sorcerer's Stone and Chamber of Secrets, or not even, I mean, Chamber of Secrets, but even like Sorcerer's Stone, like, I can have issues, but most of the time, like in moment to moment, I'm never really bothered. It's most of the, like after the fact stuff, I'm like, ah, oh, so thinking about big picture, blah, 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 uh, aside from a couple things. But this is like, there's just several sequences and moments where I'm like, ah, ooh, we, And so that, I definitely experienced that. Uh, and the extra, I guess, bit of important information is uh, up until I read Deathly Hallows, which has now become my favorite, Goblet of Fire, was my favorite book. And so it's my second favorite in the whole series, despite the fact that it's the only one that I think has a major issue in, in the books. <laughs> but I overlooked that issue because I just love the book so much. The Triwizard Tournament stuff is some of the most fun. And, and it that's, might have the best ending of all the books. It is it's, an incredible it's, ending. It's between that and Half-Blood Prince for me. Mm. Um, I mean, like like Prisoner of Azkaban might have the best, one of the best climaxes, but as far as just yeah. the climax to ending the the aftermath of the of the climax in Goblet of Fire is so visceral, world changing. The thing is, like Azkaban's is like a it's like a third of the movie. <laughs> you know, it's like its climax is extended, and it's great. It's great, but because it's so spread out, it's hard to like. There are times when I've rewatched. Prisoner of Azkaban, and the first time they go through the time loop you're going to experience, I'm thinking, oh, the movie's almost over, and it's yeah. not. It's <laughs> absolutely not. It just feels like it's almost over, and you don't get that with, with Goblet of Fire. I mean, once it's, you reach... it's the same with the book, except for you see all the pages you have left to read. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, that being said, uh, I'm my relationship with it is not a very long one, but there were ideas going into it that I don't, I don't even think really informed my relationship with it on rewatch more removed from that first viewing. I still have all the issues that I do. And I think the biggest disappointment, and I try to avoid this, is my love of certain things in the book that just do not translate at all in the film. Uh, so I, it, was a, it was a bit of a, a good bit of a bummer, the first watching, but I, I've grown to in, enjoy it on the second watch. Um, mm -hmm. So there's that. Yeah, so I watched this shortly after I, re I read all the books and kind of watched each film after I finished the books in very, very a quick succession. And so I finished the book, hopped over and watched the movie, and was very disappointed. And uh, have, like a ride, have continued to be disappointed with every rewatch. Um, yeah, so if you like this movie, and there are a lot of people who do, more power to you. Um, and I will not begrudge it at all if you'd rather not listen to these three idiots you know ripping at it for two hours um, i'm gonna praise it at parts it's not yes it's not we, I, we will try to be it. fair like yeah. I, I, there are things there are praiseworthy things but yeah just 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 so you know fair warning <laughs> this is gonna be a lot of fun for us and probably pure misery for anyone who likes the movie um yeah so getting into the movie i i, I do first uh, kind of continuing the um Continuing that thought, I, I do want to make it clear before we kind of start shredding Mike Newell's filmmaking is that nothing we say about him as a director is to be taken in any way as a negative statement on his character or him as a person or honestly, like even his integrity as an artist. I feel like so much film criticism these days just gets really personal and nasty towards the filmmaker and I'll go just and they try to 
they try to make the, their efforts at filmmaking super cynical and just they're stupid or whatever. Like, no, like, I, like by all accounts, he's like a really lovely, passionate person. I watched a whole bunch of interviews. He seems to be someone who loves, you know, just making movies for the sake of, you know, he just loves movies. He loves storytelling. He cares about the story he's telling. He's well-liked by his cast and crew. So like, it's, I don't want to be seen as bashing on him. Like, honestly, I, th I think I would love to work on a set with him. He seems like a lot of fun. He's like very boisterous and intense. Um, just watching him get into the energy of whatever scene he's directing. There's a great story about he either pulled a muscle or cracked a rib. Uh, the story kind of varies, but like when uh, the Phelps twins were wrestling after the aging potion, he like, he kind of walked over like, no, you got to do it like this. And just got down to the ground and started wrestling around with um one of the twins and then he like, <laughs> pulled a muscle. Like he's, he's that kind of filmmaker. Um, so that like, comes I, across, I feel too. Cause like all the performances are dialed to 11 in that <laughs> regard. So I, I, that comes across to me, but also like, I just want to say too, that before we go into absolutely eviscerating uh this movie i wanted to say that um there are moments flashes of brilliance like uh in the um in the scene with the unforgivable curses right when moody performs the killing curse on the spider it you know it focuses on the spider and then you, you know zooms into the background where harry is already there mm -hmm. and like that that's brilliant stuff i would not have thought to do it you know yeah there are a lot of little touches that we'll definitely mention throughout yeah um so well yeah i'm just saying like there's there's a lot to love but yeah yes yeah, so, so, like he he seems to be a genuinely great guy and who likes you know who loves making movies people like him so that's there's that now <laughs> okay um so i think there are, I think there are a couple problems with this film. Um, one I think is, is very story-based and the other, I think is, is stylistically. Uh, let's start with the stylistic one first. So Newell came in and he's a filmmaker with a very strong point of view. You know, he, ha he knows the movie he wants to see. And I, I feel like very often with franchise films, the problem with a filmmaker coming in is that they're really boring. Like they, they don't really have a point of view. The films look bland, you know, there's just there's not a lot happening. There's, they feel very cookie cutter and just assembly line. That's not the case with the Newell. Like he's a filmmaker who clearly has a very strong point of view. Like he, he the, just just the look of this film is very distinctive. It doesn't look like any other film from the series. He he really went into the designs. Like Hogwarts once again, Hogwarts once again looks entirely different. Uh, and just that there's so many just different sequences where he you could tell he really got into it the production designers and you know and he has a vision and and a very strong style um which then might be the problem like i, I in many ways like him taking over this is, is very similar to what uh Quaron did you know he came in brought his own style brought his own energy he told the story he wanted to tell um but i think there's something very that that quote there's very telling in the quote i read compared to last week we talked about um the advice that del toro gave Quaron, you know to to not don't come in trying to do your own thing look at the material and do what the material needs and you might make your most personal film here. Like that quote where he talked about, you know, I came in, I thought, okay, I'm going to do the a really dark, creepy one, but Oh no, Corona's doing that. So I can't do that. So I'm stuck. Like, I, what are you even thinking in that regard? Like read the freaking book and then figure out what tone it needs. So right off the bat, I think unlike, even though Coron definitely did bring his own style to it, 
the film still feels like it's it's all about telling this one story with Harry, whereas this feels like a film like Quran is like I I mean Newell came in is like I want to do this I want to do this I want to do this and those things he wanted to do had real no real relation to what the story he was actually telling, and so we end up with like a very erratic film that it just feels like scenes just kind of happen for no reason. Like there's like, there are story scenes and then there are just Mike Newell having fun scenes. If, if I may interject, there's actually like a previs of the dragon sequence that is extended. We burns down the forbidden forest. Yeah. I'm like, (laughs) and luckily he was told no, but, I wish I wish they had gone a little further with the no, but that's the kind of <laughs> that's the kind of thing that's like, whoa, man! Like, yeah, yeah. Um, this is an established universe. You can't just wreck it like that. <laughs> yeah. So and we talked about last week. Like, why? Why does there's a very wild anything goes style thing happening with Corona? It's a it's a crazy movie. There's just there's there's a lot of just plain weirdness that. I, that is off-putting to some people. And we talked about, like, why does it work there? And and we find that a very similar style of energy where it's just, like, he's just doing whatever he wants. Why is it so freaking grating here? What, what are y'all's thoughts on that? I don't know. I, it's, I have a hard time putting a point on it because this is much too vague and not at all a satisfying answer. But I just find the stuff that Quran did when he went out there 99% of the time really compelling. And I find a lot of what uh Newell does here when he really goes out for it just cringe <laughs> like there's there's it, it's it feels like a very I don't know really try hardy kind of like and we're, we're gonna be funny and I'm gonna do this weird thing it'll be wacky and zany and it's just weird. So, so a moment that I watched I I guess I just didn't notice it the first time I watched it but this time I'm like what is going on after we cut away from the the Quidditch championship and it's them in their tents and Ron is like he, he says his first whatever line he has about Victor the Weasley twins are like flapping their arms with the cake going <laughs> and like they're not saying words they're going come 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 as they're like going and so I'm like this isn't human behavior. This is, <laughs> I t- go back and watch that scene. Yeah. If you haven't noticed it, go back and watch the Weasley I, I know twins. what you're talking about, man. Yeah, that's that's, that's why we're laughing. It's so weird. And I mean, the Weasley twins are their whole own weird category in this movie. But there's just, there's all of these things. It's like, what, what are you doing? Why is everything so exaggerated and weird and why doesn't anybody act like a human being i feel like i feel like with um prisoner of Azkaban, there were there were moments that are like wild zany and played for a laugh like when the whomping willow just absolutely evaporates that bird that's like but you see that's like inconsequential to everything like that's it's a scene transition it's it's nice moment of levity but um it doesn't derail what we're doing here whereas like the entirety of the yule ball is me going oh no <laughs> oh no why you, why you we... don't like flip with crowd surfing <laughs> yeah. oh, why did that have to happen <laughs> no, uh... is the, the so many jokes here like when he gets stabbed in the hand by haggard like to the table yeah it's like 
There's no blood either. It's just the most bizarre thing ever. He just has a fork sticking out. Honestly, of his reaction is rather small. To having forks yeah. stabbed through. His head. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. It's a, and I think, I think tone is going to be the the big the word of the day with this episode, and that Prisoner of Azkaban, while wildly different from the first two, feels like a fully consistent work unto itself. Like that, it gives us a world. And in that world, there are Jamaican talking heads around every corner. Like that's yeah, there are. <laughs> like that is that world, and, and very rarely are you ever taken out. And everything, and like every single weird thing, and just change feels like it's feeding into either the tone or the story or Harry's character. It's all just it's all part of a whole. As we said, this movie just feels like a lot of wouldn't that be cools happening constantly and like <laughs> that's happening in pre-production you know it's happening in writing and then it's happening on set and then it's happening in the editing it's just every every time everywhere you look they're just doing things you know just for the fun of it and so it's it's the tone is all over the place like there's scenes where it's, trying, where it's like it's scary one moment that just like there's a weird joke and then there's like then there's the, it's also in the, in the filmmaking or just like the filmmaking is super wild and over the top, but it's just like you never really figure out like what is this movie trying to do? And I think a big area where that's happening is in the performances. A lot of very good actors are very bad here, or at least not very good. Um, like now, all of the performances in all three previous films have been they're they're very heightened. Like they're 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 they're, they're definitely over the top. They're very caricatured, but something in this movie where just every actor like if if the if the previous films were like at a nine this is like at a 15 and it, it's they're just it's it's so uh. strange and then like these other actors like like the guy who plays karkarov is terrible because he like everyone else is at 15 he's at like 35 and <laughs> it's everybody they're just, they're just they're trying so hard and the jokes and that, that, i think a big part is the jokes he goes so hard for the gags. Um, I, I, I think it's funny because like this f film, despite being the first one directed by a British man, feels the most American of them all. Like I feel like for me, like British comedy is, you know, more dialogue driven. It's about wit. And like the jokes are usually around someone saying something about meaning something else. Like it's all, it's all very, it's the, the comedy is kind of happening in, in subtext. Whereas this movie, there's no subtext. It's all just text, which is a very crude American way of, of doing comedy. Um, and an example of that is, is the scene where it's a, it's a brief aside, but where the Durham Street students kind of come and they're asking some Hogwarts girls to, uh, to the ball. And like, it's all, it's all just done so big and broad. Like the students, they come, they all like bow really elaborately together. Then like all the girls like together, look at each other really big. It's like, it's like these big body movements. And it's just like, I, I understand you're trying to do this like fun kind of lilty thing, but you are hitting like every beat, whether it's the bow, the girls kind of very elaborately giggling and looking at each other that all together looking back, like you've removed the human element of this, where it's, it all just feels like you, you choreograph the heck out of this scene to where there's no more life anymore. It's all just like, it's all just these gigantic, very silly human movements. Um, just to, and to the point where it's just, it's, it's a cartoon. They're all, they're all. Yeah. The, the real first offender for me is the, the, uh, Bobaton's entrance and that weird little sway <laughs> they do with the sigh. I'm like, <laughs> What is I this? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, 
And, and, then, and then the Derm Strings, they have these giant fire sticks and they're doing their own dance. And why is hey, it? Why is that it, looks it, kind of cool? It does look kind of cool, but why? <laughs> why? I can't tell you why. I mean, I guess it might as well happen at this point. Also, what can also contained in that scene, if this were transposed into another setting, maybe it could be funny. But at this point in the series, Filch's run is like <laughs> yeah. just beyond anything reasonable. <laughs> this is the most like needlessly absurd thing. It's the, yeah, that, that, that's the whole movie. Every the gag body is language needlessly is... absurd is a good tagline. Yes. And so it's like every scene I'm constantly being taken out by just by the complete lack of total consistency, a lack of consistency with the performances. Um, it just, it just feels like revering all over the place. Um, and also I, I just think stylistically, he's kind of awkward. Like he mixes like these massive stylized camera movements that he's like these big sweeping crane shots and lots of Dutch angles. And like, he'll have like this really like elaborate crane shot swooping in. And then he'll cut to like this really static tripod shot. And then another really elaborate, like steady cam shot. Then the static tripod shot, like the, just the rhythms of his seasons are off where it's like, like you think of Quran, he, he had this really like beautiful flow to his cinematography here. It's like, oh, this scene's really, this, this shot is really stylish. This shot is boring as can be. And he just kind of cuts between them in, in, in a, in a way that really has no, um, real rhythm. Like there, there's no rhythm to his films. The energy is constantly being jarred. And also I, I don't think he can direct tension. Like there are a lot of scenes in this film that like, there's a lot of straight up horror in this film. And and some of it works, I think, because of the imagery. I think he's I think he's he has very strong imagery, but he just he rushes through everything. All these sequences are so fast. Like the the, the Voldemort scene at the end, like there from the moment they land in, in the graveyard to the moment we have Voldemort standing before us is less than three minutes. I'm just imagining if David Yates had had a chance, or even Koran had a chance at this scene, like just let things breathe. The tension is created by the quiet moments, the looks, the music, like, but no, he has like every single sequence. And this is a two hour, 40, almost two hour and 40 minute film. I, I get that he has to be places, but it's, it is so chopped down. Excise some stuff. Yeah. Like, like, yeah, that's a good answer too. But like all, all the moments like that, I think could have been great because, you know, because of the production design, because of like, just, the inherent qualities of the story, they're always lesser just because he's in such a rush to get through every single scene. Well, and, yes, and that's to, to, uh, to be fair, there are times where he lingers too much. For example, the dragon chasing <laughs> that could have been way shorter to get the point across. But even that scene just ends without a climax. Like the dragon just kind of falls. <laughs> like, and, <laughs> yeah, there, there's so much wrong with that scene. That I, I actually like that scene. I like it visually. I like it as far as like the moment to moment action. But then there are things that happen that are just inexplicable, like the dragon crawling across the roof. And that's of- the title of this spot, this episode. And then there are things that happen that are inexplicable. <laughs> like- Man, I've got some thoughts <laughs> about why, like areas that should be lingered on and the other areas where we're just like party crouch where are you junior (laughs) (laughs) sorry so the the initial for me the um 
so just talking about like the pacing of some of the scenes, there's a couple of moments that I do want to highlight on this topic. Uh, we we are in and out of that championship and then attacked by Death Eaters and done and done. That is the most rushed sequence. We bear, we don't. You've got a Quidditch tournament and that incredible. I love the uh, so like I love the introduction to that whole scene. I think that the the shot running up the hill to the boot is one of like the weirdly coolest shots ever. Yeah, like the the whole all the grass and the boot, like the the way we're moving, like that whole composition and where everybody is positioned and stuff. I love that shot a lot. And I think uh, this movie, sometimes it really, it gets scale in a really cool way. Like I think the yes. establishing shots of the stadium are pretty phenomenal. And even just floating around and like when we, we see like the TV screen made up of all of the, like that's, there's so much cool stuff and the lighting is cool. Yeah. And... That's one thing that Newell gets really well is scale. This world feels massive. Yeah. Uh, but for such a massive, cool, potentially cool sequence, we get there. We don't even see the game or even really any bit of the game. And then we cut to like the celebration with God knows what the Weasley twins are doing. <laughs> and then it's like, Oh, it's, no, it's it's Death Eaters, and we get like a couple of Dutch angles. I don't. I'll, I'm not a big fan of the lighting of that scene. It feels a little. I don't know. We just we set up some props and we got some light, like movie lights out there. It just it didn't feel half as creepy as it should be because it's very creepy in the book. So we're like, oh, we've got some Dutch angles of some people walking in masks. Bada bing, bada boom. You got yourself a sequence. We're off to Hogwarts. It's like this is. We didn't spend any time on any. We didn't spend time on the game. We didn't spend time on the celebration. We didn't spend time on the Death Eater attack. Like we just have, we've got this massive world, this huge amount of people, like thousands and thousands of people. How much money and did they Harry spend on that, that on those five minutes? Like they had to build that giant exactly. freaking camp, the CGI on the stadium, all the effects of the flying, like the, there's big scaffolding they had to have built for the sets, like the stands. Like that's a massive sequence. And it's over in like three minutes. Yeah, it's ridiculous. And so the whole pacing and structure of all of that is like mind boggling to me. The other thing, this is something that really bothers me. And, you know, I, I'll have my rants against book purists, but there's a, it's this moment is still in the movie. And it's, I wouldn't say you should do this because it was in the book. It's just, this is what you, what any competent storyteller would do whenever you're given this. So with the, the graveyard scene, we're talking about we need that to last longer. We need to build attention. We also just need to build how disturbing it is and how creepy it is. Something that bothers me incredibly is Wormtongue walks up, cuts his freaking hand off, and acts like he kind of stubbed his toe. <laughs> He's like, so bones of the father like he is speaking coherently this man was like she he couldn't do anything without shrieking in prisoner of azkaban he cuts his whole hand off and he goes into a monologue without so much as a quiver in his voice in the book rowling constantly reminds you that as as voldemort is monologuing Wormtongue is screaming in the background like he cut his hand off and like it really freaked me out reading in the book because like as you're at, like the fact that that doesn't bother him he's still going through his grandiose kind of villain story 
and all the while his his most faithful servant is out there like shrieking and bleeding all over the place and in here it feels like it's included because well the book says he cuts his hand off so i'll have him cut his hand off but i'm not going to use that to build tension or horror or anything it's just it happens and he just goes into like continuing to talk and he doesn't even seem bothered by it there's not a single tear from his eye in that whole scene and he cut his hand off and and the thing about that is too, like that the cardinal trait of worm tongue is his cowardice, you know. So it's mm-hmm. like, and he does it without. He's like, well, done and done, <laughs> got it, master. Yeah, <laughs> um, I, I, I do want to talk about where Newell said like his guiding is one of his guiding principles was trying to turn this story into a Hitchcock thriller, and I can see that in about like ten scenes in the movie. But if you ask me what like what the uh, the primary inspiration for this film was, I would have said probably John Hughes. Like that's what I feel most of the time, um, watching this movie. And that's, that's not even necessarily the insult. Like John Hughes is fine, um, but like that was that's mainly where the focus I'm seeing happen, like the moment to moment. And then occasionally he'll cut to a really creepy thriller scene, and then we're back to the kind of the teen drama. And it's like, it's like they're, 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 those are two different movies. You have the the the, the, te- the American high school comedy happening, and then, un- and then occasionally we'll cut back to the Hitchcock thriller, but they never actually meet at any no, point. And, and and the worst part about that is too is that the the mystery that you're getting from this film is completely destroyed in the adaptation. Um, so yeah, let's of- talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> so, actually so like l- l- let me finish my thoughts with the um sure 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 and, Sorry. And, and it's not and it's not like you can't have fun in a hitchcock thriller I'm like your rear window north by northwest um to catch a thief like like there's a there's a lot of like we're constantly having a lot of just fun character interaction throughout which is maybe why he thought he could do it here <laughs> but like, we're constantly having a lot of really fun interaction but gen- but usually the conversations are always kind of turning back to the mystery at hand like the, 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 both the mystery is kept at the forefront but never at the ex- but oh, but the human drama is also beautifully balanced and you just you get a film that you know, is both your know, adventure and mystery and neither side really feels underserved in so many Hitchcock films yeah, and so uh, Ryan, let's let's talk about the story here. Um, sure. So the the mystery of this, the, there's a couple couple mysteries going on. There's uh, who put Harry's name in the goblet of fire, and why? <laughs> and was it him? Did he yes. put his name? <laughs> we'll come to that scene when we come to that <laughs> scene. <laughs> but there's also um, in there's certain mysteries that are in the book which are not in the movie because the movie insisted on opening by semi-solving one of the mysteries because, and I I hate to do this, but the adaptation part of it is relevant here. But in the book, we open with the, uh, with the Frank scene, checking out the, the empty riddle house and finding Voldemort and Wormtail scheming there. And, a scene that happens way too fast in the movie. Like, again, you know, slow down, have some horror. Yeah. Continue. And, <laughs> and, the, and part of the problem is David Tennant is right there the whole time. Oh, my gosh. Like, well, he is just know, immediately we revealed. We see David Tennant's face <laughs> at least, like, four or five times before the final um, Moody reveal. Like, there's no mystery made at all about any of that. Well, and, and like, the, the beautiful thing about the book and some of the movie is that 
many of the Mad-Eye Moody lines can be reinterpreted as Barty Crouch Jr. lines, which is how you do a good clue because you're playing fair with the audience and it works both ways. But then you add the thing like the facial tics, like the oh licking thing, right? Oh so I understand that Moody is sort of eccentric because Crouch is sort of eccentric. But Crouch Jr. Sorry, I got to be careful here because it's two of them. Uh-huh. <laughs> Jr. is so crazy, so over the top that you would think a longtime friend like Albus Dumbledore would notice <laughs> that his longtime friend is licking himself all the time. <laughs> yeah. Like, so, there, are, there are two mysteries. There are several mysteries happening. Like, first, you, so you have that thing where, like, yeah, who put his name in the Goblet of Fire? Uh, who, who cast the Dark Mark in the beginning? Like, this, this film includes so many scenes from the books, but they, they rob the, the question or the meaning from that scene, so they just happen. Like, why is casting the Dark Mark in this movie? I, we get some exposition about Death Eaters, but that could happen anywhere. Like, there's there are things that there are scenes that they uh, take place because they happen in the book, but they're they're done in such a weird way, like showing us that Barty Crouch is the one that cast the Dark Mark, you know, doing away with that mystery. And and the problem with showing Barty Crouch's face is that in the book, you you kind of think that Barty Crouch Jr. was innocent. There's a whole scene, the trial yeah. scene is incredible in the book where. The, Barty Crouch Jr. is brought out before his father, who's the judge, and he's like screaming and pleading. Uh, Jim Dale's reading of the scene is is like seriously chilling. Um, pleading, he's the, the son plead, is pleading his innocence, and the father condemns him anyway, and he's dragged off wailing to ask a man. And like, and he died a couple years later. And, like, and you think oh Barty Crouch Sr. is a stone cold jerk for it too? Yeah, so like he he's he's yeah. one of the suspects. Like. That's why he's in this story. And it's like, we think Barty Crush Jr. was quite possibly innocent. And then the final reveal happens. And oh no, Barty Crush Jr. was, was a, you know, a Professor Moody all along. And it's, it's a, it's a real shock. You feel betrayed. Like I, I, I bought your wailing and, you know, moaning. And it's so like, they, they, they done away with all of that. In which case, like, are you telling me in the book he didn't leap across the deck, the desk, and start looking at the list? Yeah, so they they, they, they straight up they straight up tell us he was guilty. In which case, like, why, why even include any of the Barty Crush backstory? He's just a random Death Eater at this point because there's no there's no actual story there. Why include Barty Crush Senior? The entire, like, uh, like what? what don't even get me started on what they do with the character. Like, he, why is he just like a twitchy little rabbit? Like he's like scared of his own shadow the whole time. It, that that performance is so bizarre that the robes where like his fingers are sticking out and they're like twiddling the whole time that yeah like, like in the book he's like this really time. stern like t- total disciplinarian and like it just but could he, have been minister of magic what could have been minister of magic yeah yeah like and just here he's this twitchy little guy but and he doesn't really do anything like the, the only serve the only point the only purpose he serves in the film is to get is for them to essentially reveal all their cards like halfway through where they think as good as tell us Moody is, is Barty Crush Jr. Because they have the scene because, because they have, they, they establish that tongue flick so prominently. And then like two scenes later, we have Moody doing the tongue flick and Barty Crush Sr. being terrified. And one minute later, he's dead. And then they're huh, not- I wonder who killed him. And it does that loud movie thing of like the <gasps> no. He just noted something. 
Did you see him lick his lips and then Barty Sr. Like we had the yeah. whole little so, like little stinger in the music. They, oh, they yeah. straight up Thank tell you. us. They they reveal the mystery of the film like before the third act even started. And, and but they don't the, act like the, they have it. They act like there's still a question and mystery there. And then they play weird with the red herrings, like the scene where Karkaroff is like oh, going into the Goblet of Fire that chamber. That makes like, me straight up angry, man. That is like that's not fair with the audience at all. Because like that, and we're never no told what he does. Like, no, what, there's no, no contextual reason for him to do that. It's only there to make us suspect the evil no, no, looking guy. I, I, no, I think they say in the movie that they say Karkaroff did it under the Imperio curse from Mad Eye. Is that in the book? I, no, I, that, that's a line that they have in the movie. Are you sure? Is it? I've watched this thing I'm, several times. I don't remember I'm that. I'm almost entirely positive that it's mentioned in the... Because I haven't read the book since then, and I'm pretty sure... In which case, why aren't his eyes cloudy? But <laughs> my Which God. is another yeah, there's, problem. There's already execution issues there, but I'm almost I'm like 99% positive that during the whole commotion and the like in subduing him, that... I think it's Albus or somebody. Somebody says something about Karkarov did under the Imperio curse. Okay, table that criticism. If if James is incorrect, I hate this scene with every fiber of my being because yes. it, it's like straight up lying to the audience. Yes. Um, but if if James is right, it's all the movie is also breaking its own rules because it's which because it has the you're talking about you know, if you're Imperio, your eyes are all cloudy and you're kind of in a state in a trance. Okay, we've gone so deep down this rabbit hole. I'm not even sure where we started. Uh, what were we talking about at the moment? Uh, we were talking about the, the story, the plot, and, and so like the structure. Number one, the plot of the book is kind of broken in that mm-hmm. there's really no reason that Barty Crouch Jr. could not, as Moody, could not have sent Harry by Porky to the graveyard at any point of the school year. There's no reason for him to have uh, have uh, to have connived for Harry to win every tournament so he could get to the end and touch the quidditch cup because like only that could be a porky why that's the aforementioned issue with the book that i have there's i've i've scoured the internet there's no way to make sense of that i did see one theory it's not it's not great but the theory is that um that they wanted to bring harry to the graveyard kill him use the polyjuice potion so somebody could come back as Harry and then nobody would suspect anything happened. You can still do that. You can still do that anytime. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, so, yeah it's true. Um, so like the, the plot of the book is kind of broken in that way and the movie does nothing to fix it. But then the movie just, it, it, it reveals its hand. It has bad red herrings. And like, it's can just. I make another criticism about like the, the Barty Crouch reveal. Yeah. So in, in the last scene, whenever he's got him back and he's come back, like he, he takes him back to the room and it's just them two. The order of reveals is, it should be switched because we see, we see with our own eyes, the polyjuice potion start to wear off. And then Harry's like, I know, uh, uh, whenever he's like, what was the graveyard like? And Harry's like, I never said graveyard. <laughs> And the movie's like, oh, dun dun. Like, you can't give me a dun 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 moment. You just showed the polyjuice potion wearing off already. Like, as he's drinking at the trines. Yeah, and like his hand is all morphing around. Like, we we see the wearing off effect of the potion. And then, like, literally 20 seconds later in the scene, Harry's like, the, 
I never said anything about the graveyard. And then the movie joint, it's not like it's dramatic irony where we know and he does. The movie presents itself as if we're like, oh, oh, Harry's right. It's like, no, you already showed us. Yeah. And like, and there's, and for every scene we mentioned that has a, just a weird problem like that, there's probably another five or 10 that we just kind of forgot about because it's just, the whole movie is kind of put together like that. It is so haphazard. Um, there are so many scenes that happen as you see, like the, all the, all like the dark marsh, Barney Crouch's trial. They happen because they're in the book, but all meaning is robbed from the scene. So it's like, why didn't you cut it to, you know, to make room for actual story? Rita Skeeter too. Rita Skeeter is a big one because ultimately she is, she, she does what she does in the book, but with none of the consequence, there's no like, the students are not like teasing Harry for dating Hermione after the, the prophet story runs about them being an item that like th- she's there, but nothing comes of it. That one. I don't mind as much. That one's, that, that's more kind of like, like it's, it's just dressing. Like he's, you know, he's Flavor. in the tournament. There's reporters. It's kind of us, sure. the, the atmosphere. Yeah. But I think that works. That's not as, it's not like a cutaway to a scene that is irrelevant. Um, Sure. It's still it's still weird to me though, just because like that's her one scene of real dialogue. But after that introduction, the movie doesn't the movie forgets her as a character, but not visually. Like there's still moments like during the dragon thing or during these like where where we're kind of like, hey, she's still on the and we still give her reaction shots. Well, and she so she it, has a full scene. Like she has a full scene uh, in the victor's tent or the uh, the, the uh, champion's tent for the dragon that, sequence. Oh, yeah, that's the, right. There's the closet sequence, the tent sequence, and then that's it. We're supposed yeah. to have the reveal that she's an animagus, and uh, I mean, Hermione figures it out. But I get, I get I'm, cutting I'm fine all with that. them cutting it. Yeah, I'm fine with them cutting it. It's just the fact that he he just kind of kept kept so much of it in there that you wonder, like, but if you're not gonna have that, then what's the point, really? Because they yeah, it does. It makes her it. it makes her annoying like she is, but then we don't get the satisfaction as a comeuppance. So it's like, oh, I wanted that satisfaction. Don't give an annoying character if you don't like give me the satisfying final moment for her. That's like how the the book story is botched. Then on the other half, the other half of the movie is mostly kind of the teen angst stuff, which in fairness, that does take up a large part of the book. Difference being, I like it in the book and I hate it in the film. Uh, like, why? Okay, yeah. Like, what? What? Why do you think it it works so well and it's so charming in the books and just insufferable in the movie? We kind of talked about that as far as the mannerisms and how mannered it is. But any other reasons y'all can think of? I think part of it is we have good examples of the teen drama taking place in this same series, where it's not grating, or at least it's it still has that awkwardness to it, but is still entertaining in a way. And the the primarily i'm thinking of half-blood prince where there's a lot of teen drama in that story and in fairness not all of it works there either um no not all of it works there either that's absolutely right but none of it is quite as bad it's batting at a higher percentage (laughs) okay (laughs) here's a good example uh lavender brown lavender brown is ridiculous in half in half-blood prince yes but the film acknowledges it everyone is giving her side uh, what is wrong with you woman yeah, in this movie, everyone is lavender brown. Everyone is operating <laughs> yeah. at that so, level, and so that's just the world. Even the headmistress okay. of a school is lavender brown. 
<laughs> there you go. Okay, so that that's a good point because in, <laughs> it, it's not teen drama. It's teens involved in drama behaving like the rest of the adults would. Like, I feel like my review of this is, like, my notes are so scattered because so much of it is just individual moments. And I'm like, I did not like this. I did not like this. And <laughs> I had a like, section the, of my notes. What the hell are they doing? And why the hell are they doing it? <laughs> yeah, okay. That's, that could be a massive, that's probably like that's 75% the title. of my review. Because, like, you've got Mac, oh, Maxine getting the bug out of Hagrid's beard and eating it. Which I just, I is it a bug? Like a, so, I assume it was like a, a crumb of food or something, which is just as vile. But yeah, it's just something so gross. And then this other moment that I, it's like movie, you're not in on it. Movie, you're you're still complicit in it. Like whenever Harry like is under the invisible cloak and he sees them together, and like it cuts to him and he's like sticking his tongue out like he's gonna throw. I'm like, this is too exaggerated and. Like your your attempt to be like, oh, isn't this cringy? It's like Harry's reaction is just so exaggerated that you just end up being cringy in your response to it. And so like the thing, even outside of the Harry Potter, like we we have like the coming of age genre is a genre full of phenomenal films. Mm-hmm. Like I think of something like Sing Street, where the scene where like he's feeding her cookies and they're like they got their two kisses. It's the most awkward thing imaginable, but it works because there's such reality to it. Here, the awkward teen stuff feels like a an older director trying to just hyper exaggerate something to try to. How do you do, fellow like, kids? A couple exceptions: Harry and Cho Chang interactions, I think, are pretty decent. Yes, um, I, I'm, I'm <laughs> smiling with the, the drink dribbling out of his mouth. That's genuinely funny. Yes. Uh, but it's, it's also it's underplayed. Like there's other stuff happening around. It's, it's like it's kind of distracting. Um, like their, their conversation on the Owl Tower where he tries like, you would really go ball with me? Like he, he stumbles through. Like these are real things that we all get, you know, getting tongue tied. Like, I, um, I really am sorry. It's yeah, like, that's these are it's not bad. People are talking. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think it may have to do with I think just the act maybe the actors finding their place because I think uh, Daniel Radcliffe is actually really good in this movie I, he doesn't get caught up in like whatever drugs the Weasley twins are doing um, like what, or whatever enough, Hermione's I, I really doing um, well I don't even mind Hermione honestly oh the, Hermione. the three of them <laughs> do it oh we're going to talk Hermione cool. now <laughs> uh, we could get I don't necessarily like I think the trio Ron as a character is obnoxious in this, but I, none of that is on Rupert Grant. I think in terms of acting, the, the trio kind of comes out mostly unharmed for me. Hmm. Yeah, let's, I, let's put I a pin in her mind. <laughs> I will say, like, I want to cut back to Madame Maxine, and I, I promised I wouldn't do this, but I must. I must. So she is treated sort of similarly in the book as a comical sort of figure and a foil to Hagrid in that regard, but also. Also, she does a great deal to help us relate to Hagrid in an awesome way with that whole, like there's this scene where Hagrid is drunk at the Yule Ball and he's coming, he's coming out and being like, you know, I've never met anyone like me before and you're like me and this is wonderful for me. I hope it's wonderful for you. And she is horrified to face the reality 
that she's a half giant, you know, and it's it's still kind of goofy because it's Hagrid and Hagrid everything is goofy, but at the same time, it's like extremely heartfelt stuff because Hagrid is, in many ways, like he he opened us up to this world. He opened Harry up to this world, and he is somewhat of an outsider on it. And part of Madame Maxime's function in the book is to face the grim reality that our beloved Hagrid is kind of pushed to the side in this world, and that's kind of unjust and terrible. Mm -hmm. But instead, no, it's just funny. Let's have him stab. Instead, they're dancing, and he keeps reaching down and grabbing her butt. I'm like, (laughs) I don't want any of this in this movie. (laughs) Yeah, I, I, I... I don't want to judge this film too harshly on what it didn't include just because it's a sure. 600 page book. And yeah, I, but I, I do get you that like that. I definitely do miss that kind of development for Hagrid. Oh boy. I feel, I feel like we're being so scattershot in our discussion, but this film is just fitting because this film is all over the place. Yeah. And I, I think you can't really talk about the tone of this film without talking about the actors and the many things they do. Um, First, let's start with the positive. Oh, we're here. Uh, Daniel Radcliffe, I think, is phenomenal uh, in this movie. Uh, we said uh, with each previous film, he's been better than the last one, and I think that continues to be true here. I think this is the point we get to where I'm no longer like, oh, maybe you should redo that line every now and then. Like this is a genuine good performance, top to bottom. Like he he's a, he's an adult actor now. Yeah, I have no complaints about Daniel Radcliffe in this. There's there's no like awkward high pitch, like scratchy voice yelling that I immediately kind of grade against. There's no, like generally speaking, it's, it's a good performance and I'm not, and it's shockingly understated given everyone else around him. Yeah, this, his, whenever he does the awkward high school stuff, I think it's pretty good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think him coming back from the, the, the graveyard is great. Like him weeping over Cedric's spot, like, yeah, all of that stuff comes across really well, and that should be all of the reveals with Mad Eye and and, 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 like, and that's with before. He's just a really charismatic performer. Like you, you can watch him for two and a half hours, um, and be engaged with him. He's very good. <laughs> There's one scene that is so far out of character, though. Like after the after they get the egg, and we're like when he's in the Quidditch robe and like rock and rolls playing. Should I open it? Like, who is that idiot? And what do you yeah, do with Harry okay. Potter? It's so I'm, bizarre. It, it, I am so glad that you called that. I have that in my notes. I'm like, why is he like, what's up with this? Agon on like the, trying to be this hype guy. What? When, when early on in the movie, he says, I don't want eternal glory. Exactly. Like that's, Harry is the person who's like always awkward whenever you put in the spotlight. This kid's like reveling in it. Like uh, it's small, but like uh, there's a thousand, there's a thousand small things in this movie. Um, I want to run down kind of a list of actors. Uh, you met, you mentioned you liked uh, Emma Watson as Hermione in this movie. Um, I think she's weird. I think it's, it's, she is very very uh, emotional the entire film like, like right at the opening yeah, scene okay like she is angry at harry and Juan because they're asleep and she's like yelling at them and like and don't come back to sleep like what is going on and like she's at this weird pitch where like, every she single like she's on the verge of tears yeah, every, like, every scene like why is she about to cry when she's exp- explaining to fred and george why their aging potion won't work like why is and, like, and there's so many scenes where she's always looks like she's on the verge of tears and once or twice it's actually justified like in the um in the uh the uh forbidden curses uh you know class but 
it's just like i don't i mean I, what are you doing like why are you so like on the verge of like collapsing into, into hysterics at every moment you know what i take it back you're right it's strange well, i i didn't notice it with the aging i guess it's because of the dialogue of the like it's not going to work you but know, she like, like jesus looks really irritated like oh it, it's it's, it's to, weird and then to and be this, fair uh, i think what they were going for is that she is emotionally mature more than these boys are around her and she's frustrated at ron that they're not keeping ron especially <laughs> and, and the whole i'm not I, honestly like the whole i'm not an owl thing it's a good line but at the same time like why didn't you snap at ron for that first like he's the one making you do the crazy elaborate <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. I, I, it's, so. it's just a strangely calibrated performance and like the big scene like after the ball where her and ron are arguing they're 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 both having different arguments like where R rupert Grint is performing as kind of sullen and surly and kind of mumbling off lines and hermione is having like the epic breakup she just found out her parents died and someone vandalized her book and the world has gone to hell and she's just like distraught and her and ron's like eh, whatever, whatever i don't care it's, it's like they're, they're they're not they're not communicating with each other as actors like they, like they, they both practice these this argument in the mirror ahead of time and they're doing what they practiced but they're both on entirely different um levels of emotion yeah and, um, and in that case it really can't be and i don't think you are in this sense it's like putting the blame on watson because then she is directed to sit on the steps and cry mm -hmm. so like so newell wants this kind of performance from her because he lets the camera linger on her crying on the staircase like cinderella like it's, well, it's, in that case it's both of their faults for not kind of meeting each other um but then the rest of the film she's also kind of weirdly on the verge of tears well part of it is she's kind of sidelined too like in in every previous harry potter like they had to they had to find a way to get her out of chamber of secrets so she couldn't solve the mystery too <laughs> soon all right and then of course we know prisoner of azkaban she's a huge part of that climax the, in, in in sorcerer's stone hermione is instrumental in figuring things out so like in this one though it feels like it, hermione it, it, as far as the plot goes not at all related yeah Our the number book, one she's detective is not on the scene like she's doing her spew yeah. thing, which I I, <laughs> I I understand why they cut it, but like, and the Rita Skeeter thing, she's yeah. also on the other end of that. Of too. the things to cut, spew is among them, but <laughs> I miss it. Yeah, so like she like and Ron gets Ron gets his a lot of his subplot retained because it's more involved with his friendship with Harry, and I got like that's a, it's a hard role to play because it's he's so freaking unlikable in, in both the book and the movie where you're like. He's so unfair to his annoyance at Harry. It, it's it's sort of understandable with the like them constantly harping on his poverty and how like just he's feels like he's always you know the one left behind and too poor to do anything. Um, and a lot of that's cut out here. So he does he really comes across as an enormous a hole here, um, as well as a middle child it's, it's, with everyone else filling a role that he doesn't have. Mm -hmm. It's it's also too quick. I would have. I would have put a scene maybe before everybody putting in be like, like maybe say have like acknowledge that uh that the Weasleys are gonna the Weasley twins are gonna be like oh we're gonna find a way to fool this and have Ron be like do you think we should try and Harry be like no nah, I, I we couldn't fool it I'd rather not and then have Harry's name come out so Ron could be like I thought you said we weren't gonna do that mm -hmm. and then you went and did it without me yeah yeah um 
there's, there's a lot of actions I want to mention, so keep running through the list. Uh, Michael Gambon, oh boy, I love him in Prisoner of Azkaban, and I love a lot. I love him in in um in Half Blood Prince in Deathly Isles Part Two. He's bad here. Um, like what? He's not playing the same. Well, he's not playing the same character as in the previous film, but that's understandable because no one is. And, <laughs> but like, it just <laughs> it, there's no, there's nothing Dumbledore about his performance here. Like Dumbledore needs to, needs to be like radiating like strength and certainty and intelligence, um, and goodness. But I think above all, just absolute control over his world. Like Dumbledore is God at Hogwarts. Like for all story and emotional intents and purposes. Um, in this film, he just feels like a random old guy who does stuff and reacts to things. He is Gandalf, and everyone is a fool of a took. Wait, in the book or the movie? movie <laughs> <laughs> um like, like he's just he, he and he kind of radiates like weakness and befuddlement there are several scenes where he's just kind of confused the scene of him sitting on the staircase is he's like feels so like after the pensive out of it. after he comes out of the pensive yeah but before like like we when harry comes out of the pensive and dumbledore's like pressed up against the wall like what is <laughs> happening like He's like weirdly pressed up against the wall. He's scared of something. And then he kind of walks around like, I don't know what's going on. It's so strange. And he curls up on the stairs. Like he just feels like a befuddled old man. And then obviously we get the, 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 the scene that you, we referenced in the opening, the, the, the famous, you <laughs> did you put your name in the Goblet of Fire? Dumbledore asked calmly. And in this, in the film, you know, he comes running and he's yelling. He grabs Harry's shoulders, shoves him against the table. Stuff is clattering around. He's like yelling in his face, shaking him. I'm not a boy. And like, what? What? What are you trying to? What are you doing here? Like, I, I get. Like, this goes so far beyond just like making change. You know, making adaptation changes. Like at this point, you are taking an established character we've seen in three films. And giving us an entirely different person, um, and like we we've seen guy we've seen Gambon play him in the previous film. It's just like it's it's just such a failure. Um, at it's not as you know it's not just oh I like the book version like this isn't even the film version. Yeah, that's exactly right. because yeah, the thing is one of the things we talked about Dumbledore is is he has that kind of that confidence that in control and. Like Gandalf, whenever whenever you see him worried, you know, crap, something's going down, like something insane. And that's the effect that it achieves is 99% of the time, we have some reason to be reassured. We have some comforting presence from him. And even so, he's less intense than Gandalf. So default is just like, even though things seem crazy, and I'm not going to dismiss it entirely. Dumbledore still seems like he's got stuff going on, working out. So we'll assume he knows something up. So that, again, the, the effect that that achieves is whenever he doesn't seem certain, whenever there's something, it's like, holy crap. That's the entirety of this movie. There's not a singular scene where Dumbledore feels like he's in the know or he has anything in control or he's, he's even prepared to do something whenever something's revealed he just like you said he feels like he's entirely reactive he's in he's confused by everything he's irritated by everything and everyone it's like this is not the guy i want to have any 
trust it. Like this guy seems like he's about to fly off the handle at any given second. Does even, not seem in control of anything. Even so, like a, a, another, it's less, it's less wild, and the circumstances are more harsh. So I get it. But even in the trial scene, when Karkaroff lists Severus Snape and he just starts yelling at Karkaroff, like the way that plays out in the book is he he just matter-of-factly states, you know, Severus Snape turns by a great personal costume still. He's no more a Death Eater than I am. And, and this one, he's just like straight up screaming at Karkaroff. And it's like, dude, you you are the very well-respected headmaster of the only wizarding school in, in Britain. You are a guy who people wanted to be minister of magic partially because of the quiet power you command. And you're, you're like joining in the trial hysteria. Like he feels no different than anyone else in that scene. And that's not how Dumbledore should feel. Mm-hmm. Um, and now to the, the other one of the other really big additions you have uh, Brendan Gleeson as Mad-Eye Moody. And I think Brendan Gleeson is the perfect casting as Mad-Eye Moody. And I think the design is also perfect. He looks fantastic. And I think he's great half the time and terrible the other half. I, I, y'all might disagree with me here, but I think like whenever he's calmer and quieter and speaking like an actual human, he's really good. But then every other sentence, he goes from talking normally to yelling, yelling, and just speed talking and running around. And then he'll say another, couple, another lines in a normal voice. And then he's yelling and running around again. And I, I hate it so much. It, it, it irritates me to no end. <laughs> like, I, 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 I feel like the character would be so, like, um, I feel like, and Newell does the same thing with Voldemort, where his idea of being intense and scary is to yell and talk fast. That's what Newell does when he wants a character to be scary. But like, I, 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 I find it so much more intimidating when a character gets quiet and focused and they're looking at you and you can't, it's like, like, a, like the later scene when, um, when, uh, when Severus, Severus Snape is confronting Harry about somebody stealing potion ingredients from him. And he's just, he's, he, he, like, he doesn't change his tone of voice at all, but it's, it's scary because he, it's because of his manner. And like, I, I, I feel, I, I, I wonder if you know, Newell kept directing like, like, how about a little faster? And he just didn't get at the same level. Like, I don't know. I feel like somehow Alan Rickman escaped the, the notes to get, be uh, faster and more intense in this film. But like, th- that is so much more intimidating than just yelling, which is what uh, happens so often in this film. And it, it really brings down Gleason's performance when I think he, he is the perfect casting. I think we may have different thoughts comes to Voldemort, but I, I mostly agree with mad eye because and again i'm trying not to just project everything both the descriptions from the books as well as you know my own bringing to to the character in the book but it felt like a little bit like a more wild and paranoid loop to me in the book of like the he really he helps your confidence he's there's an element of like a genuinely good teacher to him but he's, I don't know, he's maybe not the guy that you want to, like, be around kids. Like, he's, he he has a next level to him. But here, he really does, he seems crazy at times. Like, whenever he's turning him into a ferret and he's like, ha, 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 ha. I'm like, dude, that guy's, that's, 
that's a insane man. And like he's kind of doing the same when he's like the with the crab thing, and he's like he has that like high pitch laugh he does. I'm like this guy is crazy. And I I sent a, a picture of myself to the chat because it feels like every other scene when somebody shows up to a or anybody walks by him, he does this like weird pouty lip thing where he's just like like staring weirdly at the person. I don't know. It's it's too crazy, and but like like it's not. It's not a performance I also write off because he does have moments that I think are truly great. Technically, it's a ferret. <laughs> yeah. What are you doing? If you could just... Teaching. <laughs> he's, he's fantastic in many, in many moments. Even so, like, I, I, I disagree that every instance of, of like, the, the intensity of Mad-Eye is bad. For example, like, during the Unforgivable Curses scene, when Seamus is like, the old Kadra can uh, see out the back of his head and he just throws the chalk out. I love that moment. And uh, out here across classrooms, like that's, <laughs> yes, that's, that's great. That's fantastic. So like, but also I think part of the problem is he is playing, he is playing Barty Crouch Jr. Played by David Tennant, playing Mad-Eye Moody. That's a lot but, <laughs> going on. And then you add like all the like the facial tics that David Tennant was doing in t- conjunction with Mad Eye. And I, I think the intensity it, it does at times <laughs> go way over the top. I, but, I, I don't I don't like that though, because well, for one, there's zero hint of that in the book. And if I'm gonna be that I'm gonna, but the book. Sure. Uh but even in the film, yeah. like this is a, is a truly insane person, as James said, or maybe you said yeah. that. Like, he has to you there. Ha, he has to be reasonable in the eyes of most people. Um, and the thing is, the reason why I think that moment that you brought up works is because that feels like angry old man who just has stopped giving a crap. Like, and that's kind of the way I perceive Mad Eyes. Like. As an order, he's gone through so much crap. <laughs> he's, he's like, I'm not going to give your stupidity the time of day. Right. And I have a very short fuse right now. And so the idea of, of throwing, a, throwing chalk across the room, like, and here across classrooms, and you're going to pay it. Like, it's just, it feels like this is mad old man who's who's not afraid to scream at kids. It's when he's doing that to McGonagall that. that it's jumped the shark a bit. Yeah, and like, it's, it's this psychotic gleeful laughing and like that that's where it's like there, there's a difference between mad in the way that i think he's supposed to be and truly like you belong in an asylum or in an asylum mad yeah I, and i'm the reason i'm not saying it's good i'm just trying to explain why i think it is like yeah. it's 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 because he's playing off of a very ill-advised david Tennant situation and adding that on top of a solid moody foundation because like he has smaller roles in other films but he has other you know he comes back and i have no problem with him elsewhere and before we move on to one last thing about it that i'm man this is this is just too much during during the dance scene, we just cut to him and he's like <laughs> swaying on the chair by himself, humming to him like, 
what is this movie, man? He seems like exactly the kind of guy that just doesn't show up to the Yule Ball. Uh, 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 but I, I think that is, like, if he, if he did show up to the Yule Ball, I think that's what he would have been doing the entire time, just drunk in a co- drunk sitting against the wall somewhere, hopping <laughs> yeah, to himself. That's but, not the way. He, with the whole, he looked like a little kid just, like, hobbling. I'm like, this is not Drunk Mad-Eye. This is, no, like, the dr- goofiest, silliest thing I've ever seen. Uh, drunk Mad-Eye at a teen party is Strider in Lord of the Rings. Okay, He is in the corner <laughs> brooding. You know, that's that's Drunk Mad-Eye at a party, I think. Um, yeah, David Tennant was mentioned. I think he's terrible. Goodbye, end of story. I hate every second he's Goodbye, on the screen. I, I, and I love David, <laughs> David Tennant. Like I first watched this film, I was watching you know his run as Doctor Who. He's a great actor. There's nothing redeemable in my mind about what he's he's every second. Like he feels like there's like something in his skin trying to rip its way out. He's like oh, I just I don't know. It's it's wild and just terrible. He's a lizard person. Yeah. As a lizard. <laughs> You know that that vine of like it's the old couple and the old man is talking to the news anchor and then he just like he gives the impression of the dog that like chased him. And that is perfect. Barking at the camera. That is that's, perfect. <laughs> that's what I see in David Tennant here. Well, the, the thing is, like, we're we're led to believe that this guy was able to live with Barty Crouch Senior as a Death Eater, <laughs> and Barty Crouch Senior not notice. His son is absolutely deranged. Hello, father. <laughs> like, I would have sent him to ask a man the moment he even spoke to me like that once. Like, dude. This guy, if anybody's a death theater, it's, it's this guy. <laughs> yeah. He's the kind of guy you imagine is ripping legs off of frogs as a child. Like, the signs are there, man. Like, you're just ignoring them. <laughs> yeah, like he's in like everyone else is already super high, and he's an entirely di- in an entirely different movie. And same with uh, the guy playing uh, Igor Karkarov. Um, I'm not going to try to pronounce his name because I'd mutilate it, but he's also in a completely different movie as far as his level of intensity in everything he does. And I do really quickly want to mention the Weasley twins. Like uh, this is all, yes. all the things I hate. I really like them in the previous films. I think they're just downright irritating. And the films here. going forward, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, just like like Newell's attempts at you know youthful exuberance or whatever. Like it's just they're again, it's just completely mad, and they're That's super rubbish. super irritating. Exhibit A: the weird bird flapping. <laughs> Exhibit B: every other word they say. Um, <laughs> like the, it could have been funny, but even like the try saying that and like just bobbing their head around and then another moment I'm like these these are like the super weird kids that like couldn't because you you get the, the the sense that the weasley twins are popular like people like them they're funny they'll do things that you're not brave enough to do they're the class clowns that everybody like nobody really is upset with the Weasley. like it's the weasleys they're funny they're hilarious they're great in this it's like oh dude they would have been bullied <laughs> hardcore like but, but whenever Whenever McGonagall starts playing the music and they're like mock dancing in the song, I'm like that is so cringy. <laughs> I think I think if I had to describe, and I think because Newell is trying to do the the awkward teen drama as someone who hasn't been a teen in a very long time, and the the Weasley twins are a a casualty of this, but I would think that. 
all of the teen drama in this movie can be summed up with how do you do fellow kids <laughs> like that's uh, how this whole movie feels to me speaking of which how have we gone this long and not mentioned the hair <laughs> oh the hair it's how do they have time to grow with this long between Azkaban and this first of uh, all and everyone's doing it it's not like it's not like it's just Harry. It's Harry. It's Ron. It's the Weasel. Like everybody, it's like it's Neville. Big Hair Week. Dog Wars. Yeah, Neville is it on the action? What the heck? <laughs> uh, it, it, it's, it's like okay, if you want them to have quote unquote cool high school hair, why aren't they doing like an emo nineties two thousands thing? Why are they having like seventies hair? Like that. Is, like the Weasley twins. They look exactly like my dad does in all the pictures of him as a child in the 70s and 80s. Like, that's what that hairstyle is. Like, it's, it's, again, it's, you know, it's a very, it's an old man doing what he thinks is cool. There's, there's one, one Weasley twin moment that I do kind of like is whenever he asks, I forget who it is that he asks, but he's like, would you go with me to dance? Like, yeah, okay. Like, that scene, I think, is Angelina? Kind of funny. Just the, yeah. Just the 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 cat the the funny way he, he throws a piece of paper at her and it annoys her and it like what and then just the little we go to the dance with me like yeah okay like that that's that's pretty high schoolish like that's a that's a real moment there and genuinely charming in a way that they usually aren't in this movie they've also got a weird rasp they're always talking about it feels like in this movie like there's a weird voice thing when they're they're shouting I'm like this is off-putting but the, the one guy that did somehow miraculously miraculously escape uh the terrible hair is a uh, robert pattinson as a uh, cedric diggory um and he's really good and he, al- he also missed the memo to uh drastically overact and so he's also good as an actor uh and i really like him yeah yeah he's super charming to me in this like he's so likable they're uh like he, he also to me he really feels like a high schooler the the scene whenever harry asked to to talk to him in the, the outside courtyard area and like somebody shouts an insult at harry and robert he, he turns around cedric turns around and kind of like he smiles at it because he thought it was kind of funny but then he's like hey i i didn't want them to wear the bed like it, it feels like he's like he's not going to turn his back on us like his friends are poking fun at harry and he's kind of laughing with it and then he's like ah I didn't really want all of this, but he's not completely distancing himself from it. And then I love the the bath hint. Like when he comes up and he's like, he's talking, like his facial expressions, just he feels like he's being super clever. Like he's like, what a, take a, take a bath and have it. Like just his whole energy in that scene, I, I really love. Yeah, it's a, it's a difficult character because like he has to be like, redi- like, like hatefully handsome. Yeah, like a really good student, like super popular, super charismatic, like the kind of person you want to hate because they're so good at life. But also, he's really he's a really good person, so I can't hate him despite wanting to. Like he's he's he exists in that area, and it's it's it, and I think you know, Robert Pattinson at this you know ha- just innately had that kind of charisma to him, and you just you just like him. Yeah. He's the he's the Ned Flanders of Hogwarts, like. Wholesome. He is so much cooler than Ned Flanders. No, Ned Flanders is awesome. Stop it. <laughs> no, Ned Flanders is fantastic. <laughs> but... what, what I mean is, what I mean is, like, 
he is like the picture perfect model student and like like Gabe said you want to hate him but it's just impossible you know the guy is just too too likable um which is good because that is what Cedric Diggory is supposed to be and I think Newell's conscious of the fact that we're killing this guy off so he has to be yep lovable I just wish that wasn't at the cost of everyone else being dialed to 11 while he's at a comfortable eight, you know, like, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, Uh, I I do what we, we should mention the tasks really quick. Uh, The first task is dragons. I like that. I really enjoy this one. I think the dragon is really well and just well-designed while animated. It it, it just looks really good for 2005. I believe it looks good now. It does. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, like it looks really good. I think just, I, I, the discipline of having to storyboard these sequences, I think, made uh, Newell tone down a bit. Like, it's it's like it's not a. I think in any other movie, it'd be like a forgettable action sequence. But for me, it's like when we go into that scene, I'm like, I kind of sit up like, oh, competent filmmaking. Where have you been? And it's it's very it's kind of enjoyable on that front. Um, one 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 moment I really enjoy is when the dragon lands on the tower and is kind of climbing around the edges like a bat. It's just a just a really cool visual and just well and just well executed and just something I haven't really seen before. Um, so it's a fun, fun little sequence. Uh, nothing particularly great. Um, I think you, you Ryan weren't all all that fond of it. Yeah. No, I. I I think it's to me it overstays its welcome like there are a few times in movies that i've rewatched where i can identify a point where i'm checking out every time but the dragon sequence is one of them i think to be fair i think the individual beats of it are fantastic i think the cgi is fantastic i think the directing on it is fantastic i just think it overstays its welcome it fe- I know the Triwizard Tournament is part of this, but it feels really weirdly irrelevant. And I think part of that is... Maybe there's a book reason for that. <laughs> yeah. I, th- I think part of that, too, is that um, whereas the second task, we have the, uh, the element of people they love being in danger. And in the third task, we have the... the um, the intrigue in the maze and the, um, uh, it's the psychological. You. Yeah. Yeah. But with this one, it's literally just, here's a monster, Harry have at it, you know? And that's fine. I it, look, look, I, my problems aren't technical so much as just like, I start to check out. I'm not as invested in this moment. And that's really weird for me because like, I'm the kind of guy you say dragon I'm in, you know, <laughs> but I don't know. Something about this sequence just doesn't work for me. It feels like we're taking it. Actually. What's funny is it feels like the Quidditch scenes in other Harry Potter movies. Don't you dare. Quidditch is amazing. <laughs> I just think the Quidditch scenes are like, uh, well, it's time for an action sequence. Let's cut to Quidditch. And Rarely, well, it is time for an action scene, so let's get to Quidditch. Dang it, <laughs> uh, you're losing all your credibility now, Ryan. Uh, you've hurt my soul. Look, I, I like Quidditch <laughs> as a part of the Harry Potter universe, I think it's great. 
that there's like a wizarding sport. Like I, I love the idea of it, but I think when it comes to filmmaking, like it just, it doesn't work as well as it does in the books to me because books are afforded that time to ramble. And, and frankly, the, the Quidditch rivalry and build up is, is better established in the books. And I think the dragon suffers from the same thing. It just feels like, okay, it's time to do a thing and we do the thing and then it's done. You know, but you, James, are you wrong? Like Ryan? Uh, <laughs> well, I feel like I'm more in the middle. So I, I, I am deeply interested in monsters. Like I just, you throw big monsters on the screen. I'm like, ah, that's a big monster, man. I'm here for that. Uh, I love the design of the the horn tail so much. I love seeing the dual fight, like where you see the the fire ignite in its mouth and meet in the middle. Like the design of all that is awesome. I wish that he stayed in the arena for longer because that's where I feel the tension and the danger is like whenever he's jumping from rock to rock and he's like even even without the dragon, just like jumping from this rock to that rock and like he slams on it, that hurts. And then the spike tail lands next to it. Like that's where it feels intense and scary and dangerous. Once you get the broom, it feels like, I mean, you're probably faster than the dragon. So it's not as crazy there. And, and that's why, of course, they got to take the broom away from him again. And that the flying around is kind of where maybe not as negative on it as Ryan, but that's kind of where I start to, to see where he's coming from, which is we're just kind of flying around the castle for a bit. And, and I just like, you got to drag and do something, find something cooler to do. I'm, I'm with you. I, the, the image of it, like kind of climbing around the scaffolding is like a cool image to me, but the rest of it is just kind of like, we're, we're flying here and I hit this and I fall down. But I don't know. That's the whole this the sequence. I, I get what you mean in that it there is. It's it's maybe a bit too long because for a bit it does feel like we're just kind of we're we're zipping around. And I like uh, all the constituent but, parts, but something about it doesn't come together for me. But but I also feel like there should be maybe a couple of more. There should be something more iconic about this. You know, like, oh, this is the part where the dragon does that. Or this is the part where Harry has to dodge this. Like, it, it really, it feels like part of, like, half the scene is just kind of flying around. And I don't know, maybe that's unfair. Like, because what else are you supposed to do? He's, he's flying away from a dragon. But I don't know. So one thing I do like, though, is I, I, I like him coming back and, like, uh, the hand sticking out and zooming in on the egg and then cutting on him holding the egg another like that's a cool transition I think yeah it's not an amazing sequence for me it's just like oh competent filmmaking <laughs> it's just it's about it's like it's like that for me um the, I guess the Yule Ball is kind of a set piece um <laughs> I, I do uh, Ron's just kind of whispered oh bloody hell bloody hell as he's putting on the dress robes that's a feeling I do remember very distinctly from childhood being forced by my mother to wear something dreadful. Um, so I definitely feel his pain. I also like the, um, when they're talking about like, how do you get just one girl to, to ask? Yeah. <laughs> and then Harry's like, I think I'll take the dragon. <laughs> about the. <laughs> that was another scene where I'm like, Hey, this is kind of high school fun. Like yeah. I did like them, them searching for dates was, was fun and yes. funny. And it, it wasn't like the potential to be over the top and, 
super cringe was there. And I think kind of for all of the sequences, like we got to find dates or else we're going to be the last guy. Like that's right for the kind of awkwardness that is in this movie and like not good awkwardness. And so the fact that he avoided that and he had like these kind of like these fun little funny moments, uh, like good on you, Newell. The, the set dressing they do for the Great Hall for like this winter wonderland is gorgeous. Like, it's a really well put on sequence. Just like when the dresses are all swirling and the dancing is happening, the waltz, like all that. Like it's it, there's money on the screen and it's, it's kind of pleasant to watch. And then the weird sisters come out and it turns into a mosh pit and I want to claw my ears and eyeballs out and drown myself um, and then burn the house down. Like an ogre who just don't care. The worst part is now that James has like listed all this talent that came in for this, it's like, how 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 does it end up this bad? <laughs> it's just a it's a bad idea from the beginning. Just like it's, uh, it's every element really, is terrible. It's like the song. Also, to me, I, I really do think like that song being behind so much of that just makes everything worse. And what I really don't like about that song is it feels like how do we do a Harry Potter rock song? Where it's like, in real life, songs are usually about one thing and they'll have this thing here. But that song is like, throw every canon Harry Potter creature into the lyrics with a rhyme. Like, we're talking elves, we're talking dragons, we're talking ogres. Like, do not have a normal lyric that could work anywhere else. This is full on. Every bit of lore is dumped into a song. It's really cringy to me. It is cringe. It's like, it's just like, I, I always imagine like the wizarding world is different. They have their own thing going. This is just like, this is a muggle rock concert just happening in Harry Potter. This, this is not why I come to Harry Potter. It just feels so wrong and out of place at Hogwarts. Um, the second task, the lake. Um, this is pretty good. This is like, it's, this, it's I think it's well put together. And shockingly for this movie, it's well-paced. The effects and compositing in the water is fantastic. I love the color. Like, it looks as good as Aquaman does over a decade later. Um, it's really, it's got great atmosphere. Just the muted sounds, the kind of the sound design, the, the light filtering through the, through the water. It feels like you're in a weird, slightly creepy other world. Um, it's just a really great sequence. Yeah. The, the visualization of of all the different routes they take to be underwater, I think is really cool, like really well realized. Harry's gills and fins, I think are cool. <laughs> I really like the weird shark head thing when yeah, it comes to transfigured crumb. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then the the bubble around the mouth works weirdly well mm -hmm. visually, I think. Uh, yeah, I think it's a cool scene. And I, I love hearing like the faint singing as well. Yeah, uh, the, uh, and then the, the Grindylows swarming him at the end, I think is actually scary. Just how the, like you can't even see them. There's so many just all over each other, and you, his you know his gills are closing. You can't breathe. It's like the claustrophobia. The claustrophobia really starts setting in there. Yeah, it's cool the, creature design too. I think. It, mm -hmm. it is. I think that part of what works about this for me too is like we. We don't visit it much in the movies at all, but the, the Black Lake is like the water equivalent to the Forbidden Forest on the Hogwarts mm. grounds. Like, it's got stuff in there, man. And it's like, the, I like the murkiness of the scene. Like, it's like, 
clearly shot like fresh water as opposed to like ocean scenes where it's just like you can see for miles but no this is like man it's in in my opinion like the the antidote to the dragon task in my opinion and again part of it is that the you have uh hermione being crumbs hostage you got ron being harry's you got um fleur's sister being hers and you got cho being you mean we have wax dummies of all of them yes (laughs) why did they not try to make them look lifelike (laughs) They, they look so weird but there are at least stakes to this that are relatable and and all but one of those ties back to harry anyway so it's like and you've got the different approaches with the shark and the gills and the bubble. Like there's different, there's a lot more going on. It's a sequence that actually I think has a chance to breathe. And like most of the movies <laughs> is, is moving so fast. Like, <laughs> like Ryan thinks the dragon sequence breathes a bit too much. But I feel like this one is, is allowed to actually have some atmosphere and tone and tension. Before we move on, we got to the, the lake scene. We need to go back a bit and talk about the egg in the bath scene. We can't oh, go through this review no. without <laughs> talking about that scene. Uh, I I think the tune that Patrick Doyle created for the the uh, the mermaid song is very lovely and a nice theme. Was there anything else you wanted to mention? Oh man, Mo- moaning Myrtle being an absolute peeping tom ghost weirdo like <laughs> like this is absurd and disturbing of the highest order. Man, the the constant peeking and having to gather more bubbles. I'm like, please relieve me of this. Please let me leave the scene. And and a note that I put is when we go underwater and we hear it, the image of her like laughing, nodding face next to the egg is a crime against you. <laughs> like, go back, look at that scene, and look just like a a two second gift of of the of the moment. <laughs> where her, she puts her face right next to the egg and like nods and smiles. It's, oh my God. I hate it. It's so <laughs> weird and off-putting. I, oh. Uh, I, don't, I, I, is, I honestly I know. don't mind that scene as much. It's I, it's all just, I think it, you know, it's just ridiculous and silly. I don't care about it, but it doesn't rub me the wrong way as much as it does y'all. It's so uncomfortable to me. And then like, she's, I get, she's a ghost with like just the lying next to him and like snuggling up. I'm like, Oh, let me leave. Let me go. <laughs> These are like 13 year old kids. Get me out of here. 14. <laughs> 14 year old kids. Regardless. I don't know. I heard of the idea of like 14 year old kids, like peeping at each other's bump. Like, oh, I want to no, leave. No. A fifty-year-old ghost of a fourteen-year-old girl, played by like a forty-year-old woman. Yeah, (laughs) it's just so like the the moaning Myrtle aspect of it is just grating and horrifying. And I know it's moaning Myrtle; she's supposed to be, but this is a different kind of secret. It does, it does, and it's because it's in its like context of. Moaning Myrtle just being a distraught human being. I not, was distraught. Yes. <laughs> not, not Moaning Myrtle being pedophilic. <laughs> I mean, like. I mean, is... she's also a kid, too. Like, they're yeah. supposed to be both teenagers. So. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I, I get that. To me, I don't know. It's just the. 
you can only play the uh oh his bubbles are running out and she's getting a pe-. like you can only play that visual gag for so long in a scene yeah again talking about scenes needing to let scenes breathe and others breathing too long like let we we played the uh oh he's got to gather more bubbles we just we did that too many times in that scene just get me the heck out of here uh yeah <laughs> I mean, and I guess it did what it accomplished. It just did it too well. Um, <laughs> so uh, ne- next up, we have uh, the third task, which is the maze. Uh, in the book, it was all full of creatures and monsters and like puzzles and weird mental challenges, like finding yourself hanging upside down. Uh, here, it's just a vines and uh, temptation or something. A uh, bit of a letdown. Yeah, I don't like this one very much. The one praise I'll have for it is the the visuals of the vines grabbing people is mega creepy. Um, particularly when they're grabbing at uh, Diggory, and like he's trying to run and they're like pulling him backwards. Like that's pretty effective. But overall, it's like eh, it, 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 like it could have been good if Newell knew how to direct tension and horror. But like everything else, he just speeds through it, so it's like it doesn't really leave much impact. Well, also and like I get the idea of like there's like some kind of foreboding intense psychological effect going on in this maze but this also feels like less severe than the previous two tasks yeah it's It's over so fast like the first task you're facing a dragon that's hardcore the second task you're out of your element in a mermaid kingdom trying to rescue your friends underwater that's hardcore and then this one it's like hedge maze with wands go That's what's great. Like they hype it up. Where it's like I, I forget the specific thing that Dumbledore says, but he he makes some sort of very ominous statement about what lies in the maze. And it's like dude, at this point in the Wizarding world, like vines trying to grab your feet is it, it looks creepy, but like and we got the whopping willow right outside. Give me a break. <laughs> and, and we uh, had the devil's snare in the first one. So like we've yeah. done this trick before. So and. The other thing is, I, it feels like the movie is going for the psychological aspect, but it not in a way that I feel like makes much sense. Like it just, it like the filmmaking is like, ooh, this is pretty creepy. What's around the corner? What's going on? Is it in its head? And then it's like, no, but there's spooky vines. There's the cup. And it's like, what? I, I don't like. <laughs> and and the, the, the moment of temptation is like all of five seconds long and then Harry decides to do the right thing and it's over and like and that being that that being like a supernatural moment of temptation to me doesn't come across super well either and also like isn't this a competition like how is that a temptation aren't you supposed to ditch the other guy and get what you like they they actually sort of made fun of Harry supposed to demonstrate high moral fiber yeah the the second pass they kind of made fun of Harry for doing it and here it's like you have to demonstrate the high moral fiber I don't know. It's just, it's not working for me. It just feels like it comes and goes. Like, I think it's not like the shining, like obviously don't rip it off, but we're running around in a hedge maze and it's like creepy AF. It's so tense, so (laughs) foreboding, so atmospheric. And it's, it's just, it's just a chase scene as well, but they let like, they just, it just gets to you in that one. And here it's like, and that brings us to the absolute butchery of uh, the Imperius curse. Uh, it's and like this is this isn't even a in the book it was this and they changed it for the film. This is the film is so freaking stupid that it contradicts itself. Like well, well first off, when uh, Moody is demonstrating the Imperius curse, 
he's actually doing a levitation charm. He's not controlling yes. the creature's mind. Yeah. Like, when he has it over the water, it's like crying out and struggling, trying to grasp the edges. He's just levitating it. Like, that's not what the Imperious Charm is. That scene, you're like, wait, what's going on? Because you see its arms trying to grab the other end and pull itself away. It's like, what? And, and he literally says, the tricky thing is, like, how do you know people who 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 worked for Voldemort were doing were, were were doing of their own volition and not because they they were under the Imperius curse and later on in the maze oh you and, and Harry literally says oh he's under the Imperius curse look at his eyes well then maybe they should have looked at their eyes earlier <laughs> <laughs> the rub is how do you sort out who are the liars it's obvious mad eye they have cloudy eyes <laughs> yeah it's like they, they so they get the curse wrong twice in yeah. the same film and contradict in themselves while ways. doing it. Yeah. yeah. And and to be fair, they do it again in Deathly Hallows where like the goblin is just like for the whole time he's imperious. And I'm like, what does this curse do in this movie does universe? It, does I mean, that mean Voldemort's army was just <laughs> like they look like they're high as a kite walking around. <laughs> I mean you, you know the listeners can't see your faces. Uh, well, just <laughs> man, derpy and waving and smiling <laughs> and happy and giddy, but now to be fair, like in Deathly Hallows, again, it's a it's a bit of an adaptation thing because in the book we get the sense that Harry's not exactly good at the Imperious Curse, <laughs> so like yeah, th- there is a sense in the books that they are, people are kind of vague and out of it when when they're yeah. under the curse. Um, yeah. But they kind of played up for comedic effect. But even that, 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 even then, that adaptation is so much closer to what the book version of the curse is. Yeah, yeah than... this is just like you can tell. Like, I, if I saw Victor Crumb come up on me like that, I would immediately think, "Oh my god, this guy's possessed." <laughs> it's like, <laughs> no. how did the Ministry have a problem with this? Uh, and that uh, brings us to the graveyard scene, uh, where the movie actually kind of gets good for a bit. Um, <laughs> And there's a the great thing that feels weird saying great, but like it's a really powerful thing in the, in the book and in the movie where they just write up and kill Cedric, and it's like the rules have been broken. A kid has died right in front of us. You're not allowed to do that in this kind of story, especially um, the kill the spare line right before it's like yeah, and ooh. it's a person. It, it's it's not some red shirt. It's Cedric. We liked Cedric. Like we we liked Cedric, we cared about him, and like which is again how a great casting with uh Robert Pattinson, you know, making us care about the character, and then just to blow him away, and then nobody is safe after this. The rules are broken. Voldemort's coming back. It's just like this escalation of horror. Not as well done in the in the movie, just again because Newell has to rush through everything. Like in the book, it is. It's like three chapters of just slowly escalating horror and it gets worse and worse and worse. And it's like, you're just traumatized by the end of it here. It's just pretty disturbing, which is, which by this film uh, standards is uh, pretty effective. Yeah. And, and I like um, the atmosphere of it. You got, I mean, it's cliche, but it's a misty graveyard. It's a very Tim Burton set. Yeah. It's like, it's, it's cliche. It is very Tim Burton. Now that I think about it, (laughs) now that you say it, but in a good in a good way like it plays to that strength and i think uh part of it is like when the death eaters show up and they form a circle and voldemort is just like unceremoniously unmasking them and why are they wearing dunce caps it's supposed i think they were supposed to go for like 
Klansman kind of thing. Yeah, I was about to say, that's the vibe I got. Uh, Dunce Caps was the vibe I got. I I thought, I don't know, there's something to me just incredibly creepy about the weird pointed, like, masks. So I find their visuals very insane. I think they look so freaking stupid. And the the, the weird half skulls with their noses sticking out. uh, I don't. I don't like it. Uh, well, I, actually, I like the design. I like it too. I'm not gonna lie. I, I, it's just. I mean, I don't it think... looks very, very cultish to me. Like it looks very pagany. It looks like middle aged dads trying to be culty, which I guess is what it is. <laughs> I mean, wizarding culture is like stuck in the middle ages, apart from no like, middle aged dads, as in oh, forty year olds. Yeah. Um. I mean, isn't that what it is, though? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, and so that brings us to uh, Voldemort. And as I said, like the resurrection happens so fast, like, and that's a little disappointing. Uh, the design, I think, is perfect. Um, the gross little Voldemort he dumps uh, in there is disgusting the in the baby. best way possible. But that yeah. little shriveled thing, <laughs> even when he's just sitting in the chair in the flashback, like, or in the in the memory thing, and you see his hands. And like how scrawny the weird, the little bitty wrists and feet, like it is so gross it's, in the most effective way. It's like Ooh. aborted golem. It's disturbing. Like, mm-hmm. I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, also the, uh, the 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 returned Voldemort, just the the the, way, oh, yeah. the effects on his nose, the white, this just weirdly skinny and slightly oddly shaped. Uh, he's just, it's a fantastic design. The lack of shoes. Lack of shoes, the lack of hair, the, I mean, very weird looking, the lack of color in his skin, it's, it's all just nah, wrong. It's like fish-like almost, like mm-hmm. albino yeah. fishy texture. And the way he moves too, like the way he kind of like glides around, Real, it's, it's weirdly graceful. And that brings me to what might be heresy. I don't love Ray Fiennes as Voldemort. And that's not only in like his... Whoa poor Mike Newell directed acting here. Overall, I, I I think he's good. I think Ray Fiennes is one of the great, you know, male leads. Like any movie he's ever in is better for, you know, better for having him. He's just a bit too whispery and I, I just just the the read he has on the on the on the character and, and not just talking about this film, like is is a little off for me. Like it's a it's a good villain. But it doesn't rise to the kind of iconic status he has in the books. I, I, it might just be just the way he delivers every line, so kind of whispery and slowly, and just feels so lethargic. And it, it just doesn't entirely work for me. It's, it's a good villain, but ne- never quite rises to the level of horror that I, you know, got from the books. Um, and then coming to this film, he has the same problem as Mad Eye Moody, where Newell's direction is when when the scene is supposed to be scary is just to just to start running in circles and yelling. And there's just a lot of moments where he just like, he's he'll start a sentence in a normal voice and then just start going really fast and yelling and finish the sentence yelling and then run, run halfway across the set while doing it. It's just, it's just so erratic. Like it's how much, I think the sequence would be so much better if like it was, you know, like actual presence and consistency and like just rate a radiation of evil, not just manic. Uh, I don't know. It just doesn't, doesn't work for me that well. Judging by the silence, I guess that was blasphemous. <laughs> uh, I 
I really love it. I, I actually, I really love him in the scene and in the series. And the thing, what's interesting is like, we, we, we're both noticing the same unconventional things about him, but I guess it's just working in different ways for us because to me, these weird choices they make is what elevates him above what would have been his peers. Because I feel like we, we have, we've got the, the very stern ever present villain the plant your feet in the ground look you in the eye and monologue you and for this i like i love the weird gliding around like the again it kind of goes with this weird just it's not the gliding that i mind it's the it's the well but but like the, the fact that he's like running around across the set like it feels culty and like it feels like some sort of old pagan magic that we shouldn't have brought back like he's especially like it's just something to note but i i really do think it goes a long way having the feet exposed one just because it makes him putting his foot on cedric's face all more transgressive uh but just again like there's something weirdly earthly about like just having these bare feet these long hands and like the way the robe billows around as he's running back and forth and, I mean, all, and all that's like fine. Had, that's not what, not really what I'm talking but about. He, but I think that performance. Well, I, thought, I thought you were saying you. Yeah, I thought you said you didn't like the like, having him run around this. Oh no, and no. Stuff and, I like how he billows. I just don't like that he runs around like a toddler who had you know, had too much cake. No, that's what I'm saying. But I like that he does that. I like that he's running around. Uh, I, I do too. Like when he's ripping off the masks and yeah, just, just oh. Oh, that, I, I, I feel about that the way I'll do Myrtle in the bath. I hate it so much. It's so cringy. I, I think it works. I for think him. Re- some of their reactions are cringy. I don't think they got the best actors under the mask. We're like, oh, and like, like they fall <laughs> yeah. over. But I think the, the image, like the, the visuals is cool. And, and then just about the voice, I feel like we've got too many, like, this is the ultimate evil. And the way we present the ultimate evil is like this deep, confident booming voice or this this kind of like demand like in this to have like the weird shirt like it feels like oh you're snake like yeah like but even beyond like it's it's even just beyond snake like it's like it is the most there's something disturbed about that kind of evil like it's not this i am this thing but it's to have him talk like, like oh there's something wrong you're from the weird part the just some sort of weird unholy depths of hell like you're talking abnormally there's something just so off and wrong about the way you talk it's not the conventional evil villain it's i don't know that weird raspy breathy manic i'm all like it's just there's there's some transgressive was the right word yeah like there's just something wrong about this kind it's not a normal kind of evil this is a horrible wrong kind of evil that shouldn't be on the earth and it's wriggling around and rasping around. it's just off-putting even like the way he feels kind of put on for me like it's too try hard i think that 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 works for him though because he is a try hard cult leader but unintentionally so like this is they, they like they thought this was really cool and scary. Man, it was uh, creepy to me. It was it's really cool and scary if you ask me. Like I I I mean, hey, you're you're welcome to your opinion. I just I, I I'm with James. Like that, and it's not just the body language too, but the the voice works for me. 
I, I, like I said, like the way he holds his wand too. Oh that, yeah, that that whole weird <laughs> position he puts his hand like it's like like I don't want to touch it, but I kind of have to. Like if I could do away with this aspect, I would. You know, like I I don't know, like he he's holding it like it's beneath him to have to use it. I don't know. It's it's weird. He's a weird weird guy. And I just I like that weirdness because like Me I too. we we have the conventional evil villain and this is just a what a, what are you doing on this earth why are you why is everything about you weird and like several degrees wrong on either I don't know there's something he's completely lost his humanity in and a everything way that you're makes saying him... though makes me feel like he's just more human like he's just a dude that's how I feel like he just. It's, there's See, nothing. Feel... It's not. It's not presence. It's not menace. It's just a guy trying really hard to be scary. But see, uh, to me, the the presence and menace, like that's where our human minds go to conjure up that kind of evil. Like, oh, and then he stands there and he's in. Like, he's like we've we create that all the time. But to me, this feels like just between the visuals and the wrong voice and the weird movement, it really does feel like he just crawled out of some weird dark corner of hell. <laughs> like you're just something wrong. Like he's lost so much of his humanity that he doesn't really know how to relate to the physical world anymore. It's what it almost feels like. It's just everything he does is unnatural and awkward and uncomfortable in a way that I, I really appreciate in, in Voldemort. And I think that honestly, that, that difference, that wild difference from standard villains. And I know you're not necessarily saying let's have a straight-laced Darth Vader kind of guy, you know, all intimidation. And, you know, I, I know I know you're not really advocating for that exactly, but it's so outside the box that I appreciate it. That's that's how I feel about Voldemort. Yeah, I, I don't admit the minority there. And I think, yeah, I, I absolutely adore Ray Fiennes. I think it's just little mis- You are an inanimate object. Go watch it. <laughs> Um, but, and then that moves us to, I think just a really solid sequence. Like, like they do such a great job of showing us just how trapped and outclassed Harry is. Like he is literally a kid being toyed with by adults. You're just throwing him around, torturing him. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's very disturbing and, and very hopeless. And speaking about that, like a uh, feeling so powerless, a moment I love is he has his mom, like he's talking, he's only addressing them. And he's like, Harry. I'd quite forgotten you that like to just feel like for the longest time here's like, Oh, I am his biggest adversary. You know, like this is something's going to go down. And then to just be like, Oh, I, you're here. (laughs) I kind of forgot about it. Just a prop. Yeah. Like the, you're already thinking you're about to die and to be demoralized. Like, like, Oh, I I got so caught up in where I was. I forgot I had you pinned to this. It's like, Oh, it's what the a, Lego Batman yeah. scene where Joker realizes like Batman doesn't feel the same way <laughs> in the adversarial <laughs> relationship. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think I think they, they do a really good job of like giving like, Harry's choice, you know, to stand and face death like a man, like he where he's you know hiding behind the the, uh, the tombstone. The camera kind of goes up in his face, like I'm gonna die, like I'm, I'm gonna die on my own terms. Um, and then we have the duel, and to give credit where it's due. It's pretty perfect, and I did not know Mike Newell had it in him. Like it's like pretty much everything. You know, I, I as with everything, I wish it was a little longer, 
but just the 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 design the um the wand you the wands joining together that effect the that just the light the streak of lightning with the um just the liquid molten liquid like, stuff spattering I love everywhere that so much it's um, the coolest visual it, it, ever it looks very physical like it takes exertion just the way it's filmed it, it's just the, the way this lit then when the ghosts come out the the sound design of that they're talking to her like it, it's there's so much happening as far as like it's a fight scene that it becomes like really emotional and there's hope and it's it's just really really well done the, the final thing with, with um Cedric, like, you know, take my body back to my parents. And I almost get a little choked up right there. Yeah. Um, you know, his parents are see, talking to him. It's it's like uh, I, I, filmmaking. That's amazing. I love it. <laughs> yeah. that, And, like, uh, I'll give credit where credit is due as well, is that in the book, this happens. And the whole time, you're like, what is going on? And then later on, you have that full-on Dumbledore explanation of what's going on. I actually don't think it's necessary, and I think Newell was smart to cut that. Just let this, let this speak for itself, and I, I think that was actually a smart decision. So I, I, I think a- I think mentioning the twin cores and would have helped. Sure, just because sure. like, w- like, why did this like Harry by all rights should have died, and then something happens. What happened? Um, like we we can, we all import our knowledge yeah. from the books. And like, that's oh, fair. Sure. I guess I need to think about that. Yeah, that's fair. It's I, it's I meant the specifically all over again. Yeah, like, oh, I, I meant specifically. I meant specifically the um, like the the ghost of, and Yes, having what's his name? What's the old guy's name? Dumbledore. No, no uh, the, Frank. the old Frank. Frank. <laughs> Frank. <laughs> what's that old wizard? You know, he's in it. Uh, having guy, him like show up and just kind of like look around, kind of because I'm like, we don't bring that up, and that's kind of cool. Like it's yeah, it's neat that these weird things, like we're kind of like here, like what's going on, and it's up to you to be like. So we just killed Cedric. We saw him kill him at the beginning of the movie, and we know he killed him. Oh, these are the last few people he's killed coming out of this one. And and like I, I think you're right. Gabe, you're right. We did import a lot of knowledge there that there are important things that Cena's is doing. So I was a little hasty in saying, but I, I do think that like, if, if we had had that scene and Harry said, I saw my parents and Dumbledore said, I have no idea what that's about. I would have been fine with it. <laughs> you know, like I think uh, uh, the, the way they handle was like, our wands connected like priori and Katatum. You saw your parents that night, didn't you? It's like, Kind of like okay, this is a thing. Yeah, that, that was pretty well handled to, to get rid, you know, to go over pages and pages of exposition. Yeah, yeah. it's kind of a knowing line. Adaptation choice. The, the right one there. time where Dumbledore felt like he actually knew what the hell was going on in this movie. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I, but my yeah, my overall point was that particular point of it. It's so cool to see unfold. We don't need somebody to explain it to us. Just let that. Yeah. Let because that it be. really, you, it really is. You have enough to be like, oh, this is kind of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it it's just a, a just really powerful, awesome film moment, and then we cut back to the crowd, and we've got the dorky high school band playing their marching music, and there's a dead kid, and like just the way that's played out, we're like a couple adults notice Harry's crying, but all the students in the, in the stands they're still cheering and happy, and like it's it's this beautiful discordant emotion with a band just keep play that stupid music and we're trying to grieve and we can't and it, yeah, it's it's such a, 
again, like a really well-built sequence. Um, that shows I think Mike Newell is perfectly capable of being a good director. It might be my favorite sequence in the film, honestly. It is mine. I think that that whole thing is like brilliant to me. The, the choice to let the music play for like 30 seconds. I think that is like the cherry on top that makes it that the confusion of the crowd. And there, there's just something so wrong about seeing the eyes of realization and still hearing the music. And like that person is freaked out, but those like the two rows behind them, they're clapping and cheering. Like there's, it's so well done. Yep. Yeah, it's the the you know a boy's been killed filtering back through the crowd till Amos hears it, and he starts fighting his way forward. And a- Amos, like that guy, he's in this movie for like two minutes, but the whole "my boy, my boy" line breaks me every time. That yeah, probably the best Oscar for that moment. I know best delivery in the film, in my opinion. It's just and, like it's my and, son. Uh, and Doyle's what? music over that scene. Uh. It's funny. So I was I was watching this uh, yesterday for the episode, and my sister came in. Like she she watched all these for like for, except for the first two for the first time this year, and so she's only seen it once. And I was to the scene. She came. She sat down, and we were talking about it. Like later on, she was like, "I literally sat down like two minutes before that happened, and I started tearing up." And it's like there's something so emotionally powerful about him just screaming like there's something so paternal and care like just just screaming that's my boy it cuts through the confusion straight to the audience you know it's so and the scene where he just he pulls back and he's just looking up screaming like oh my gosh this is heart-wrenching man and we've met this guy like twice before and like one of the times not really speaking much and it was like but all of a sudden, I really care that he lost his son. Like <laughs> one less, something that I also think really works is, and again, it's just little moments. But it's whenever we're walking up to go into the maze, like he runs out first, and he like he holds his hands out, like his arms out, like showing off his son when he comes out. Like his, he's so proud of his son in that moment, like that he's this champion. Like whenever Cedric walks out, and he's kind of like with his arms introducing him to the crowd that's such a father-son moment like he is beaming with pride at his boy and so to end it with it like it's just rough and the, but the, and the book made us sit in that emotion for like two chapters I know. as he goes back and he goes to the hospital wing and the dursley not the dursley the, the mr and mrs weasley come and they're like parents to him it's it's Oh, it's like the, the the emotion of that ending in the book is so beautiful and delicate, and they like they they just barely touched it here, and it's stunning. Yeah, it's amazing how like it's a shocking um, moment of really efficient filmmaking to condense that feeling into a moment, and I think it probably and it doesn't feel like to... we're having to settle like as book fans either. Like it's truncated I mean, a little. Well. <laughs> I, I do miss I do miss the Weasleys bit because that 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 relationship with Harry is phenomenal. Like, but the moment itself to me yeah. is like yeah, it's great. This is incredible. Yeah, and uh, moving from there, I think to another another failure of the movie. Surprise, surprise. Uh, <laughs> this film doesn't end like Hitler just returned. It doesn't. the The book ends, and you're like, 
the world has changed. Everything we thought was secure and safe is not. The, the, the course of destiny has been, you know, unalterably shifted by the events that happened here. And I cannot even imagine what life will be like going forward. And this one has her mind saying, everything's going to change, isn't it? And like, yeah, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that line cracks me up unintentionally. And it's like, yes. there, 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 there's no weight or import to that ending. And I think one reason is that we missed the argument between Dumbledore and Fudge, um, which is, mm. you know, when Fudge comes in and, he, and it's such we've been through all this. We watched Voldemort, Voldemort return. We saw him kill Cedric. We, we, you know, Harry dueled him and we get back and, oh my gosh, the, you know, the world's going to end and the government doesn't believe it. And they're actively hostile and it's so infuriating going I, towards the ending and as far as and, franchise filmmaking goes, there is your hook, man. And they just mm -hmm. decide not to go with the hook. Yeah, and so the ending is just like it, the ending, like they're, the they're like, oh, are leaving. Yeah, uh, it's, like, it's like it's like a teenager's goodbye after school. That's 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 the emotion they're playing at the ending, rather than Hitler's back. World War Three is starting next week. Deal with it. And it's they, and they make the same mistake in Order of the Phoenix when the credits music is immediately like cheery after Sirius <laughs> is dead. So like I, there, there does I, I'm not gonna single out Newell for for this issue of not well, lingering. This is one of the credits are here. Like we've got this. I, 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 well, not not even mentioning anything about Fudge and the government not believing. Yeah. It's like it's it's. Well, he says you know, so. The, the, so the Ministry of Magic doesn't want me to tell you this. That's that's about all we get. Well, that's yeah. just but that but you could write that off as them being like, hey, these are kids. You yeah, know, exactly. yeah, that's true. You, you don't know that, like, they're literally. It's saying, not a genuine disbelief, right? You could you could misinterpret that pretty easily. Like this, yeah, this is the turning point in the series. It will never be the same going forward, and this movie does not end that way. Yeah. Um, I remember whenever I finished the book, I remember messaging y'all like, "What is this franchise now? Like, what is this book now?" <laughs> I, I had become so accustomed to what this was, and I mean, it's like what you said, Gabe, like. There have been some, even at its most serious, there's some level of rules that are respected. Whenever Harry returns with a lifeless Cedric, you're like, that. We, we can't go back. Like something has fundamentally changed. And the rest of the book is just like, what is, I, I know I've got Order of the Phoenix next. What is, what does a Harry Potter book look <laughs> like now? Uh, a lot of like death. Like the Staunton. It's, it's, a, it's a lot of death and, and, that's that's i know it's not we're not supposed to be getting into broad strokes here but it could be very easy to like stop at cedric just to like give the illusion of consequence but is it okay if i spoil <laughs> yeah yeah future yeah. books yeah, yeah yeah so then we go on to lose Sirius, and then then we lose dumbledore and then there's an absolute bloodbath and deathly <laughs> so it's like and harry dies <laughs> it's like I mean, we lose Dobby, we lose Hedwig, we lose one of the Weasleys, we lose Matt. Dobby, I lose, he was lose, a free elf. We, be, we, we lose both Lupin and Tonks. Like, gosh! Like, after yeah. this, they could have... hard. Yeah. <laughs> they could have stopped at Cedric, and it would have been still okay. But not only is it that this world is now different, it's that it's different... And that is going to be consistent going forward. Yeah. Also, it's the end of childhood. Like childhood yeah. is done. Yep. Going forward, Harry is the chosen one. He's like his path 
towards adulthood has been chosen. He has a destiny. And it, I think this would have also worked better if he nailed the coming of age. Part. And I don't know. A lot of people seem to love the coming of age, weird teenager stuff. But to me, it didn't come through. And I think this would have been even better if he had nailed the coming of age kind of like we're growing up we're not the kids that you saw in sorcerer's stone anymore if he had nailed that whole i mean didn't you see the hair they're obviously not the same anymore they're in a literal (laughs) way they are not but it to to have nailed that and then have been like a guy just died here like we're we're being forced to mature and now this is starting like it really would have been that extra thing to push it through the threshold into like when we show up next next year like we are not the same people the world is not the same world and that would have worked better if if the if that kind of angst the teenage angst of growing up was nailed better and if you're not going to include the reader skeeter like payoff you could at least bring her back to be the mouthpiece of the ministry and downplaying what happened and being mad at that at least like, if we're going to have Rita Skeeter, mm-hmm. like, yeah, like... Let me hate her more. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, I, it doesn't stick the landing. So, I had two last notes. They're, they're kind of not attached to anything, just a couple things that I did want to mention. Uh, one unfortunate thing is I, I feel like the classic professors get a little short change. like McGonagall's barely in it, and Snape has his couple moments, and he's great in it, but he's not very... He's not in it a lot, but a moment that I do like, I like the smacking their heads and putting their heads back to their books. Don't uh, lie to me. He's, Alan Rickman is, like you said, he's, regardless of what direction, he is Snape. He is so owned into that. But I love just the, the, the smacks or the grabbing and like grabbing their heads, pointing it back and shoving them forward. Like you, Snape loves that. And I buy that <laughs> Snape loves that. Yeah. Uh, the other thing is, and the, I don't know, maybe this isn't really a, a point to really make now because we've already we've already gone over it a lot. But I guess like a summation of a, a lot of the issues that I have with this is with Prisoner of Azkaban, there's there's not a clear plot all the time. There's just kind of a hey, we're we're doing school, but there's a guy on the loose and what's going on? And Harry's doubting himself and he's got all the but it's like it's not free of or it, it's not, it doesn't have this clear locked in plot goblet of fire has has the opportunity to have more of that kind of plot of like this is what we are but i find goblet of fire kind of just meandering a lot and like even with the, all these challenges to bring up something from the book that i do think is relevant in the book, because we get to spend so much time in Harry's head, what made me, part of what made me love that book is the sense of true dread before each tournament, each uh, challenge, and the absolute paranoia. Like, whenever he talks about Hitchcock as an inspiration, like maybe a couple times, I'd be like, I guess that, but I wouldn't have thought of myself. I don't feel like this movie functions as a thriller. And we already went through all of these plot reasons, but like even beyond just like talking about these specific points of why that doesn't hold up, it's just moment to moment. I don't know 
like I don't have I don't have the whole Azkaban thing, which is hey, there may not be a plot, but there's this great atmosphere and tone and sense of like what's going on and who is this guy and is he around the corner? Like and a really strong arc for Harry at the center. Yeah, but here it's like I forget that I'm even supposed to be wondering who put his name in the Goblet of Fire. Like at a certain point, I'm like, are we still question? Like, is that something I'm supposed to be? Wor- I don't know. The movie doesn't seem too concerned anymore about who who put it in there and i and harry like we've got the scene on the bridge where hermione is like you have like like you are trying or she's like what's that supposed to mean in the book it's like as like every day that's can ticked off the calendar is like i don't know what this is people die in the triwizard tournament like there is a sense of true dread and terror prior to the challenges and this just feels like like even though I like the dragon scene pretty well, and I really like the the black legs, like it's just it feels like we just kind of casually go into these and casually walk out of them, and I'm like, man, I'm like, I'm white knuckling the pages, like the the sides of the book as I'm reading this, like this is wild. Yeah, I I actually have um, one thing that I think they removed in the interest of expediting exposition. And it came at the cost of one of one of the key identifying factors. We wonder who put Harry's name in the Goblet of Fire in the movie. We don't wonder why that's an issue. In the in the book, they explicitly state that, like in the, in the movie, it doesn't say it, but in the book, we're talking about okay, why didn't Harry just come out instead of instead instead of Cedric? Why did Hogwarts have two champions? And that's because whoever did this tricked the goblet into believing there's a fourth school for the express purpose of ensuring Harry's there. And so what we're seeing is, and and of course the kids, all the underage are deemed not appropriate for them to do this because it's dangerous for them. So we have the sense that somebody is trying to murder Harry Potter and that that does not come through in the movie. It's just like, ah, somebody made Harry compete in a dangerous game, you know? And only at the end, when we meet the would be murderer, do we get the sense that, oh, somebody was trying to kill him this whole time. I think that's part of what, what forms a problem here. And that, the idea, like, I, we have, like, allusions to it, like, w- when Ron comes around, is like, I, you'd have to be crazy to do that. Like, there is an acknowledgement of the danger, but again, it's, sure. like, again, you can't translate everything from the book, but I just remember, we, no. we spend chapters of Harry being like, what is in this egg? What am I supposed to do? And, th- like, in the movie, it's like, we've got the scene of him, like, oh, should I open it? And it freaks him out. And then, the next time the egg is in a scene, we're in the bath. Like, and in the, we spend so much time like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I don't know where I'm supposed to begin. Whatever this next challenge is could kill me. I, I am terrified. And because like, it is very clear, somebody wants me dead. I am in this thing and I shouldn't be. I don't know how to, pre- like, it's just, there is a level of fear, of very deep fear on his part that just doesn't come through in the movie to me. Yeah, we have a sense of the danger, but it's more like I 
accidentally click I'm over 18 on a website when I'm not like <laughs> it's not like somebody's trying to murder me yes because the thriller aspects are forgotten every time we cut to the high school aspects it's, it's, it's like we were heat we're in one tone or we're in the you know we're in the happy tone or scary tone and that either side is forgotten the instant we're in another tone and there's, there's no it's not allowed to build anything yeah let's very quickly uh, talk about the score um it's a, it's a Patrick Doyle score, so it's it's very like the movie. It's just really big and over the top, and just kind kind of, kind of ridiculous and try hard sometimes in how hard Doyle is going to try and sell whatever moment it is. But it's Patrick Doyle, and he makes truly lovely, beautiful music. Um, so even like when he's trying too hard, I enjoy the music much more than the than when the film is trying too hard. Um, there are a couple, I think, a couple really good tracks at the Quidditch World Cup. Uh, I love the the, the Durmstrang kind of percussion and the like, oh, really harsh oh, trumpets oh, and manly men chanting. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's there's two waltzes, Neville's waltz and Potter waltz. Uh, they're just waltzes, but waltzes are very lovely music, and I think um, Doyle does just about the best out there. One really good one, possibly my favorite, is Harry in Winter. It's this really lovely kind of sweeping contemplative piece it has like hints of i think um think of me from phantom of the opera in there uh it's like very wistful then there's a the big one is, is voldemort which is the track that plays over the, the entire it's like a nine minute track playing over the entire sequence it's just really well orchestrated kind of building and flowing tension that just ramps up the entire time and then we get that really great emotional bit at the end during the duel it's Really good piece of music. Reminds me, there's a good bit of like Lord of the Rings kind of creepier sounds in there. Yeah, I, I like the um, uh, what is it called? Foreign visitors arrive. Is that what it's I think called? so? Yeah, that that one's. It's played over the scene where the Bobat and carriage comes in, and where the Durmstrang's ship comes up. And I I really like that bit with the Durmstrang's ship. It's like, I I don't know. It's just like it's nothing like ultra unexpected like seeing the visuals mapped to the score you look at it and go oh that's exactly what that would sound like but it's done so well it's i love it you know like any moments that stood out to you james yeah i love the little the the high school band theme. Oh, hogwarts march it's stuck in my it gets stuck in my head all the time mm. it's, it's 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 the perfect thing where it's just played just badly enough to where it, blew, it sounds like a high school band yeah and it's just catchy enough to get to, to be a little bit of an earworm and then goofy enough to be infuriating when you're, when you're trying to grieve yeah exactly. um, it gives me it gives me lake town band vibes yeah. all right let's move into our star rating and our ranking for the series so far all right so starting with you ryan what do you give this film out of five stars and how do you rank the four films so far i i it's hard to say because I guess I would say three, mm, two and a half. <laughs> me, okay, so the highs are really high, but then, man, there are a lot of lows. <laughs> okay, so I'm only going the first four? Yeah. Yes. Okay, so I would rank it as at the top, we have Prisoner of Azkaban, and then we'd have Chamber of Secrets. Then we'd have Sorcerer's Stone. And then a couple empty spaces. <laughs> and then Goblet of Fire. So I love this movie because I'm a fan. 
I don't like it as a fan of cinema. (laughs) (laughs) So like as a Harry Potter fan, it's like, I don't skip it in a marathon because it's a necessary component. You're not allowed to skip things. It's no. just, there's, there's the rules. And there are, there are great aspects to this film, but the, the whole is just not good. <laughs> so that's, that's, uh, that's where I stand on Cobbler Fire. And you, James? Yeah, I, it just squeaks out a three for me. And I think it's, so it's, it's, I mean, it's funny because we just spent this whole review complaining about it <laughs> instead of come down positively at all. I, I think that you have to just fail every, literally every step of the way for me to, to actively dislike a movie in this world because I'm like, there, there are people flying on brooms, there are dragons, it's Hogwarts, Hogwarts looks cool. Like it's, even whenever the characters are annoying me, I'm like, well, they're still... I don't know there's still kind of those characters i i'm still in this world and i enjoy being in this world uh and so and, and like we said there are moments that i do really like there and there's some fun vibes every night like whenever it's not being crazy there are some genuinely like little that's a little fun moment that's a fun thing i think there are those great moments at the end um every like it does look really pretty i think every now and then uh so I, I'll go three and say that I, I still enjoy my time watching the movie. But as we said on last episode, like we are still in the, there is, there is a correct ranking. We have not reached the, here's room <laughs> for disagreement. It is Azkaban, Chamber of Secrets, Sorcerer's Stone, Goblet of Fire. And like next week, maybe we'll start to see, so like you could put this here or here, but right now, like if you, got any order outside of this now nah, you're wrong uh yeah so i i i give it two and a half like maybe, maybe two 2.75 if i'm feeling generous um like it, it it it's silliness kind of has its own charm after a while it kind of bludgeons you down <laughs> and you kind of got to go along with it after a while but it's and the, like the production is really impressive like mike newell put on a really big decent no cool looking movie it's there's a lot of impressive aspects there there some there are some good performances but there's also a lot of bad performances i think but i think the thing that really kills i just think that the story is incompetently told um i find the tone just incompatible both with the rest of the series and with itself the attempts at a thriller are kind of an abject failure uh the john hughes high school comedy stuff uh, that works for some people for me entire time is kind of cringy um when it when it turns into a fantasy blockbuster i think it's at its most successful when it's just doing the the action blockbuster stuff that that mostly works okay uh, but it's just it's a it's a broken film in my mind um in the end of the day and it's a broken film that also really like irritates me as a book fan almost more than any other film and film to book adaptation that i know and there's a lot of bad ones but something about this film is just infuriating this is a crowd that is i know you guys very well we're able to separate okay movie has to do something different than the book it it has a it's a different medium it requires different things Mm -hmm. so this is a group that is very forgiving i think of competent adaptation and I don't think, even though we did a lot in this particular episode, 
of uh, going to the book and complaining because the book did it better. I think in this case, it really is a matter of like, well, it's not because it's unforced errors. Like the things that are wrong about this that were right in the book could have been adapted. So it's not mm-hmm. like they they made choices they had to make and suffered for it. It's that they made bad choices in adapting. Yeah, it's just so many inexplicable things. Like, and usually, and I, I can play devil's advocate so many times. Like, I do it all the time in the Harry Potter. Like, they made that change because this, this, this. I, I am at a loss for so many choices here. Like, I, I can't even play devil's advocate for it. Um, yeah, so that's what this film is. My ranking is the same as theirs: Prisoner of Azkaban, Chamber of Secrets, Sorcerer's Stone, Goblet of Fire. I think we'll skip over the box office. It made 896 million worldwide on its 150 million dollar budget. Big hit. As to the reception, this film was really well received, and like the critics really like it. Like it's the second highest on Metacritic after Prisoner of Azkaban, and Metacritic is the one that you tell like like what Rotten Tomatoes. It's, it's either yes or no. It can sometimes like get a really high rating, but everyone gave it like a B minus or something. Like Metacritic is where they actually give the actual one to 10 rating and it, it tabulates the rating rather than fresh or rotten. Um, so that's the so critics really liked it. Um, audience ranking is a little trickier. Uh, it's the lowest rating on Rotten Tomatoes, um, even falling under the first Fantastic Beast film. However, every other site like IMDb, Letterboxd and Metacritic's audience ratings have it, you know, pretty respectably high in the series. Um, so looking around, it seems generally well liked, particularly on Letterboxd. Like, look, I've read through a bunch of Letterboxd lists. It's usually always in the top few. But, however, when we read the uh, the audience feedback, there was a bit of knowledge, even in the, the positive, the positive reviews also felt kind of defensive. So... It, it, it's kind of hard for me to figure out what exactly people feel because like any kind of objective writing side I find is always rated really high. However, there is, there, there's something in the air that even the fans, they know people don't like this one. So I, 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 have, I, I feel like I have the least knowledge as far as how the fandom and film community thinks about this one of any of these films. Uh, also, because I'm so colored by my own dislikes, like I, I don't know, I don't want to be a kind of pushing, you know, pushing the result one way or the other. How do y'all feel? People think about this movie, because um, I had a really hard time figuring that out. It's hard for me to try to discern a pattern because I know a lot of people who really, really love it, and I know a lot of other people who feel like we do, and then I know other people, like you said in the comments, who are like, who they love it, but then they talk about it like, hey, I know that other people aren't into it. Like, well, yeah, but. I see enough people who love it that I wouldn't think that you'd need to caveat with that, that you knew you could, you should be able to just say, Oh, I love it because a lot of other people do, but there's still, you still see that. I don't know if it's because they know that we don't like it. They've listened to previous episodes, but there even still feels like they're still saying like, listen, it isn't one of the better ones, but I still love it. And so I don't know, like, like you said, I, I went on the, just looking through the Wikipedia and even the, like the Wikipedia thing was upon release, it was praised for its, uh, for its maturity and tone and characterization and this and that. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what to grab onto whenever I'm reading and looking all these different reviews. I, there's nothing, I don't feel like I can find something solid. It really doesn't feel like there's a consensus on this movie. This may just be one of those movies where there is not a definitive consensus. And I don't think it's def- 
I don't think it's divisive in the way that like the last Jedi is divisive. Even us who, who kind of eviscerated this movie <laughs> during this whole discussion. And even though Gabe and I came on upper twos and, and James ended up barely scraping a three, we still, I mean, we like this universe and Except it move on. Like, I oh, got yeah. wires, got his issues, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. On toward the Phoenix, whatever. So, even those who are like, okay, this is clearly the worst in the series, it's like, but I'll still watch it. <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> it's not like utterly offensive in the way something like, oh, what would a good. Now I'm struggling to think of an analog. I treat it like Attack of the Clones. I can't hate this universe. It's got so many problems. Yeah. So I'm like, it's Attack of the Clones. I'll watch it. I'll have my good times when the good times happen. And I'll watch Revenge <laughs> of the Sith. What more do you want? <laughs> that's, that's, that's a pretty a, good analogy. Yeah. yeah. That's a, uh, that's probably a good place to uh, to end this discussion. All right. So that was our review of Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. I uh, hope you enjoyed it. And if you like this movie again, my deepest apologies. Uh, and if you did enjoy this review, uh, please take a moment to go and rate and review us on iTunes. Uh, if you want to like us on Facebook, we're there as Franchise Fatigue Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram as at FranchisedPod. And you can find all our other episodes at FranchiseFatiguePodcast.com. And where can people follow you, Ryan? In terms of social media, I don't care. <laughs> what I do care is my YouTube channel, The Raw Quiz Show. Check it out. There are occasionally some Harry Potter questions. So if you're listening to this because you saw a podcast was going through Harry Potter and you kind of like them, and if you like me, this is probably the tamest you'll ever see me. <laughs> the Raw Quiz Show <laughs> is a little more wild and rambunctious, but check it out. I really appreciate it if you would. It's on YouTube. And you, James? Uh, you can find me over on Letterboxd. I am there as JL Hamry. It's J-L-H-A-M-R-I. And you can also find the both of us as admins over on the Outer Room, a Star Wars group. Um, you know, we've got a lot of Star Wars content coming out right now. We just had the end of The Bad Badge, which is actually really great. Uh, and so if you want to talk more Star Wars in a big group, definitely feel free to join us over there. I am also on Letterboxd, and there's Gabriel Green. Uh, you can find me on Instagram as Gabe the Great Green. And I have a YouTube channel called Greenery01, where I put out these uh, movie-based music videos and trailer mashups and cool stuff like that. All right, so next week uh, we enter into the reign of David Yates with Order of the Phoenix. Um, I find Yates and his films very fascinating, and I'm really excited to talk about them. Um, so until next week, we will see you in the sequel. I am here because Dumbledore asked me, end of story, goodbye, the end. <laughs>